Hey listeners, uh, Taylor and Lydia here just to give a quick content warning uh, about this episode. Yes, um, we're, we will put the timestamp in our show notes for when we start talking about um, rape and sexual assault uh, in this episode, which is very pertinent to this episode of Bridgerton. We will include links to articles in our show notes as well. So take care of yourselves and enjoy uh, this episode. Welcome to Calling Cards Podcast. I'm Tay. And I'm Lydia, and we're here to talk about the new Netflix series Bridgerton, based on the Regency romances by Julia Quinn. Today we are talking about Season 1, Episode 6, Swish. Yes. Uh, Speaking of Swish, (laughs) I finally figured out why it's called Swish. Did you finally figure out why it's called Swish? I was just going to say that. It is the revealings of things that that should not or maybe should not be revealed. That's kind of what I took from it. Oh, like when when she wow, swishes her dress, I mean yeah. maybe it does drop. Everything this I think I'm just t- thinking very deeply this episode just in general. Okay, yeah. But like the swish is to see if whether or not her secrets revealed, and there's a lot of revealing of secrets in this episode. That is so good. That is so deep. My thing was like, oh, swish means that it's like the whole thing about Marina hiding her pregnancy. That was it. That was that was that as far as that's what I got. She was just Marina hiding her pregnancy and, and you know being what? a whole scheme. It could I very like well be just Marina hiding her pregnancy. Nope. Symbolism like, is everything. You're the right. The fact that like there's so much in this episode in regards to secrets and truths coming out. Yeah. Um with Marina, with Daphne and Simon. Um you know, just in general, I I think that it, it's meant to have a larger meeting because marina is not the main storyline and that makes total sense that makes more sense than what was in my head all right so that's (laughs) there you have it folks that's uh that's our episode title so yeah let's uh launch right into best dressed and best undressed uh listeners i mean let's just be honest there wasn't a lot of dressed in this episode ha just gonna say it (laughs) um i Oh, best dressed. I'm going to go with Simon in this episode, um, especially when he's wearing his robe. That's a delightful robe. I love it. Especially when he's wearing just, you know, like pants underneath of it. I'm just the robe. I'm, I'm into it. Um. So, yeah, I, like I, well, Simon, especially, yeah, when he's out working with... Um, they're out at the county fair. He's kind of dressed slightly down because, you know, they're just at the county fair. With the regular folk. With the regulars. With the regs. Um, and then when he is, like, moving stuff around, he's wearing this, like, delightful, like, delightful black shirt with, like, gold, like, polka dots. They're not really oh, polka yeah. dots. But, like, it works so well and it looks really good on him. It does. 
and Queen Charlotte and Lady Danbury aren't in this episode <laughs> to really steal so you can't that mark them. <laughs> so I can't mark them. Um, so yeah, for this one, I'm going to go with Simon. Just I think he, like the costuming for him in particular is very good in this episode. Right on. Uh, so I I felt a little ambivalent about this. A lot of times I'm like, yes, I know exactly what I'm going to put. Uh, I would I'm kind of going to put Daphne. Um, I loved a lot of her really gauzy gowns. She wore a lot of lavender and lilac in this episode, uh, which I, while in Regency times, lavender would have indicated like half mourning. I think for a modern audience, it's really supposed to show, okay, she's married now, everyone. The ice blue is mostly gone, <laughs> at least for this episode. Um, and yeah, and a lot of it is, I mean, absolutely gorgeous. There's that that dress she wears, it's like it's white with the embroidered violets on it, a little bit on her blouse, and then it goes all the way and just gathers at the at the long trailing hem and just like a fall of flowers. I thought that was beautiful. Um, yeah, lots and lots of flowers and gauzy dresses. And then I thought Marina deserved an honorable mention with maybe one exception. She had a, a lot of great dresses in this. Um, the Marina the going away outfit that she is wearing as she's coming down the stairs as it's revealed that Whistledown has printed that she's pregnant. Mm-hmm. That is gorgeous. Like, I thought that was a great look for Marina. Like, I really wish we'd actually gotten more of that look as opposed to just, like, the snippet of it we get as she's mm-hmm. walking down at the end of this episode. But I really like that that look for yeah. her. I think it was gorgeous. Mm-hmm. Another look that I picked out was uh, early on at the Featheringtons' house. Marina just just looks awesome. Like I I liked her hair. I think in the like engagement scene at the beginning, and then in this scene, which was it's different, but also just really beautiful. She has these little pearls on. She's wearing this like dark blushing rose kind of a color. I don't think that's a real color, but it's like just like it's not a pale pink, and it looks phenomenal on her it looks so good Mm -hmm. uh so yeah so that's really why she got like a huge honorable mention from me and then i thought like the like lesser honorable mentions are colin who is wearing like teal and some like bright blue colors i thought that looks really good violet who looks elegant and restrained as always i really liked the outfit she wears with like the pearl drop earrings and then the pearl drop necklace i thought that looked really good and simon because of the robe that you mentioned it's not supposed to look like an English robe. It's bright red. It makes you remember that he traveled and it looks really good on him. So those are my, I know that's just like a verbal vomit of things, but that's really what I took away from this episode for Dressed. And, uh, I have one thing for hair that we kind of talk about. We kind of talk about a little bit about this every episode, but I want to talk a little yeah. bit about the hair in this episode, um, especially for Penelope. Um, Usually, mm. Penn's hair is super poofy and super curly. And in this episode, it's not as much. It's very, it's down most of the time. The curls aren't all like piled upon her head. They're kind of, some of them are kind of falling out. And I think that's actually going to, I honestly think that's going to be a progression that we see. Yes. In the character of Penn, the older she gets, the more the curls are going to fall out and be less um pompous poofy i don't know what the hell but especially in this episode where she's having to make a very emotionally charged decision Mm -hmm. um you see her hair um is starting to lose that like innocence of youth curl and styling that her mother is so fond of putting her in 
it it looks one thing i noted is that yeah as as she gets more involved with the pl- with part of the plot in this episode her hair looks better mm-hmm. than it has before like they put her in a lot of like violent yellow and orange and pink the pink looks a little better on her than the other colors do but it's really sherbet colors on purpose um and she uh there's like some little rosebuds in her hair and it just it looks a little bit more flattering i mean they're already i think they're they've padded the actress they've got her in this wig they've got uh the, the her in the worst possible colors for her just like in the books and i suspect that probably the hair might get a little bit subtly darker throughout the series as well as like you said like a little bit well, certainly more flattering and then eventually we'll see her in more flattering colors but it's it was interesting to see it in this episode when it's so early on mm-hmm. Um, one of the, and then this isn't like a spoiler or anything. Nicola Coughlin has show, has shared this photo on Instagram. Um, and it's a picture of one of the first kind of screen tests they did with Penelope where Penelope's hair is flat. It's not Mm. super curly, but it's up in this updo and it's gorgeous. It's a great look for Pen. Fun. It's beautiful. And, um... It doesn't have those goddamn curls. Like, honestly, like, it's the curls that get me because the curls uh-huh. just don't suit. No. Like, but if she's it was gotta like, look, she's got to look like she's 16. She, oh, yeah. She has to look and out of control so of her life. It yeah. absolutely makes sense. But it's, it's um, agonizing to see when it's a character that we love so well and we know that she's being forced into things that don't flatter her by her mother. It's like so painful to watch. <laughs> and I think we're starting to get little snippets in this episode in particular about Penn and the way that her family sees, treats, and views her. Yes. Um, well, which well, is really unfortunate. And I have I have stuff to say about that later. Okay. Um, so I have a lot to say about this episode and I just feel like it's going to be all very uh I have a lot of very mixed feelings, and so I don't know if I'm going to be able to kind of, like, express my feelings in the way that I want to, because they're all so mixed. Okay. But we'll talk about that later. <laughs> yep. Okay. <laughs> Best undressed, Lydia. I mean... Huh, what a tricky one. Which characters could we question. possibly choose for this? Huh. Whose ass did we see the most in this episode? Um... I got it. Anthony. No, just kidding. <laughs> uh, <laughs> you heard it here first, everyone. <laughs> no, um, I think the best quote-unquote undressed in this episode is obviously Daphne and Simon. I mean, yeah, there we go. Daphne and Simon. It would be, it would be weird emphasis, not to choose that. Emphasis on Simon. But, uh, yeah, no, best undressed is, are the, the two main characters for most of the episode. Yeah. We'll get there. Yeah, um, I, I liked the the drama in the rain and the the library, and it was fine. There was a, it was there was a lot of sex in this episode, so 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 much to choose from. Legitimately, and this here, here's the thing that like makes me like kind of laugh about this is, do you know the song "Wasn't Me" by Shaggy? I am aware that it exists. Yes. And I'm aware that, that there are a number of locations that are named for having sex in that song, which is what I presume you're getting at. Yes! Legitimately, yeah. as I was watching this episode, the first time and then this rewatch, legitimately, I'm sitting there going, caught me up against the pillar, wasn't me, <laughs> like, oh caught me up in the library. Like, I just was singing oh. that song, at, like, mm-hmm. in my head. 
And like, I kind of got a sense of it from, just from your notes. Oh my god! So literally, that song. Uh, you know, when I was a kid, I think I was probably in either early ele- like late elementary school or like early high school. Um, I'm from a really small town in Minnesota, guys. There's no middle school. We go from elementary school to high school. There is no such thing as what? middle school where I came from. I went. So I is went, it like junior high? No. That's like, so sad. It's so, goes so like so right like high sixth school. grade. Sixth grade is high school. Seventh grade is high school. Oh, okay. So we we leave elementary school in sixth grade and then go right to the high school, which is seventh grade. And um, I rode the bus. And I can't tell you how many times riding the bus I heard was me on the radio. <laughs> and, like, for the longest time, like, I didn't get it because I was a sheltered child. Sheltered child. sheltered child would be a better term here because a lot of my friends got it and made fun of me for not getting it. So sheltered child. But, like, it's now, like, years later that I go back and I'm like, who the, the hell thought that this was a good song? Like, who in the hell thought that this was a good radio station to play <laughs> with this song playing? Like, and it was played all the time. I would hear it in the morning on the bus and on the afternoon on the bus. It was played all the time. Anyway, so now it's, like, yeah. whenever, like, I see stuff with lots of sex in it literally like that's the tune that pops into my head is wasn't me by shaggy and i love it like i love like kind of like kind of like groove into it like that like on the couch when i'm watching stuff and then being like this song makes absolutely no sense because like the whole song is about somebody accusing him of cheating (laughs) and he's like denying it but you know, anyway, that's my tangent for that song and why I was continuously humming it throughout this episode. Right. Listeners, so I'm that sorry that you had to listen to that. into the musical piece, which uh, is a different musical piece. <laughs> a different musical piece. Still a pop piece, but an orchestrated of a pop piece. Uh, for musical orchestration in this episode, I'm going to go with Domo's Wildest Dreams. Because I think that was a gorgeous use of music. Obviously, for anybody who lives under a rock, which maybe some of our listeners do, while the streams was originally a Taylor Swift song. Yes. Uh, yeah, apologies to all rock-dwelling listeners. We don't mean to offend. We don't mean to offend. I'm sure yeah. your home is very nice. So yeah, I think it's a beautiful use of music. Um, especially running through the rain. Just, it's the sex montage, and it's beautifully laid on top of the sex montage. Um, again, definitely a better choice than wasn't me, my Shaggy. In case any of you were wondering which would have been better. Yeah, no, it's, it's really, it's really beautiful, and it was super fun to hear the instrumental version of it, and I, and I enjoyed it. It's very beautiful, and it works really well to, uh, show this honeymoon period that they're in that lasts for about 15 minutes. Yes. And actually really quick while we're talking about that, I want to mention the format of the episode really quick. And like that as an adaptation, I like how they did it in terms of when you're reading a romance novel, you can have chapters and chapters and chapters just about the honeymoon because obviously sex, but also because uh, there's a lot of emotional focus in romance novels. And so you have 
both the characters like first person perspective you can get in the characters heads you can there's all kinds of drama that can happen there's all there's so many things and you can read it and it can be really engaging and it can take i mean it could be you could spend chapters and chapters and chapters on this you know time can pass weeks can pass in a show that would be boring so they do a good job of juxtaposing the honeymoon with like drama back in london um and so I thought I thought that was good. So they kept it from being boring and they, they kept it moving along. But they also were able to like have the honeymoon bit, which is which is important in a lot of like marriage of convenience romance novels. Yes, no, I agree. Um yeah, no, I thought I thought it was really important. Having just finished a romance novel over the weekend, it is like that whole like connection is really important, and I think they captured that really well. And again, kind of in vain with the book. There's going to be a lot of notes tonight. Also, just in general, I'm going to say there's going to be a lot of me talking about adaption versus um, the book versus the show adaption because yeah. I have a lot of things to say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is one of them. Um, in the books. So when Daphne makes a comment in the show about uh, she's going to go to her room and Simon says, you think we're going to have separate rooms? Yeah. That is a direct that is a direct line from a Lady Whistledown um, piece in the first book where it's like the I think the first chapter after their marriage and the Lady Whistledown line is no separate rooms for the Duke and Duchess of Hastings. And it's a very just kind of like slightly snarky line about how they're very unlikely to like, again, everybody thinks they're a love match. And they got married very quickly. And they got married very quickly. So why would it not be assumed that um, they would have separate bedrooms? So that also this is like such a staple of Regency romance of like everyone else has separate bedrooms, but not for us or else the the heroine has that expectation that there will not be separate bedrooms and then there is so anyway the whole thing around because when you're when you're that wealthy you can decide <laughs> how many bedrooms to use and so so that's a huge staple of regency romance it is and so if that that throwaway line it really is a throwaway line by simon in the show but it's a great homage to a lady whistle down line in the book and it's actually one of my favorite lady whistle down lines because, again, it's so snarky. Like, it's very snarky in the book. But just with the tints of, like, oh, no separate bedrooms, but we know they're in love, so it's okay. Like, it's it's, just, it's a great line. Do you uh, – we, we'll, we'll really revisit this more in later episodes, but do you think that Lady Whistledown is less endearing in the show than in the books? Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Um. Absolutely. And I think – I think they're the reasoning behind that, in all honesty, is because um, by the time we get to Lady Whistledown in the books, she's an established part of society, whereas everything is just starting out in regards to this. Like, Daphne starting out, Lady Whistledown is a brand new thing. Um, and in the books, like at this point, she hasn't been going long, but she's an established part of society. Does that make sense? It does. Personally, I think it's just a function of the writers wanting to create drama, more drama. I mean, that too. I mean, I completely agree with that too. 
But I think also to make that character become more enduring to us, I don't know. I th- I think that eventually that char- we're going to see a change each season in how Lady Whistledown sure. reports stuff, and she's yeah. going to become more more enduring to us. Um, but no, versus the show versus the books, like hands down, mm-hmm. I'm taking book Lady Whistledown over the show yeah. Lady Whistledown any day. Yeah, because it's we've talked about this before in the art book episodes, but it, you know, Lady Whistledown in the book functions as, as very clever exposition wrapped up in humor and snark. It sets the tone for the chapter. It, there's foreshadowing, but it's just she's such a fun voice that it it's it's I think it immediately endears her to readers and many characters as well. And she's just kind of a mean girl in this it's very she's she's a power player too in this show and that's that's one of the maybe overt differences or at least emphasis it's a different emphasis i think she's still a power player in the books but it's more of a it's that's not the main part of lady whistledown that's emphasized it's very gossip girl i feel like in this first season they've they've wanted to appeal to general to audiences of all genre um, and I think that will diverge more as the seasons go along, but especially in this first season, like it's been hailed as, you know, Jane Austen meets Gossip Girl. I think they're, they're using that as a marketing ploy, like frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, yeah, no, in, in the show, like she's very, she's mean spirited. And again, yeah, and I, I would like more snark and less of the mean spirited personally. I think we'll see more of that going forward. I preferred book Whistledown, and we'll see if that changes going forward with the next season. Uh, so I, I just wanted to read the episode description uh, from Netflix for this really quick. It, it outlines the A plot and the B plot very neatly. So. On her honeymoon, Daphne discovers just how misinformed she is about the physical aspects of the marital bed. Colin comes to a decision about Marina. So very vague, but there we have it. That's that's those are our arcs for the episode. We have Daphne on her honeymoon and very much centered on Daphne, not just uh, the couple as a couple and Colin and Marina. That gives us our two main arcs, which is Daphne and Simon have sex and Marina and Colin have drama. Yeah. Lydia, why don't we talk about our new characters for the episode? Yeah, so we got a couple new characters. We got Mrs. Coulson, Simon's housekeeper, who seems very not into Daphne taking over things. Um, and I, it's something that I didn't actually hate. Um, hmm. I kind of enjoy how Mrs. Coulson is kind of like, like constantly is like, when things are done properly... Um, because again, Daphne is young and she, she knows thinks nothing. she knows everything. She knows nothing, especially about the running of a big household and the running of, you know, tenants and everything like we've seen in this episode. This, it's such a mess for the two of them as functioning adults, honestly. More Daphne, but, but really both of them. Yeah. yeah. I, I didn't love it. It kind of surprised me because I was like, I don't really like the, this the whole housekeeper as an antagonist. It didn't it didn't play very interesting for me. But I was like, how many books have I read where this is like a, an important part of the plot for the center of the book and winning her over and doing better? Like learning is, is a huge part of the heroine's journey that I, I like it in the book. So I don't know. It just it didn't totally do it for me, but I totally get it. And 
whatever. And like the role of Mrs. Coulson is severely reduced in the show. Like severely yes. reduced in the show. Um which is kind of a bummer, honestly. If, it is kind of a bummer. So if you go back to my the fir- the episode we did about Duke and I, yep. <laughs> um that's where I actually introduced a, a little bit of a theory that Mrs. Coulson. So I'm, I'm going to go back and start from the beginning, I guess. In the book, Mrs. Coulson came to Cliveden because she was the Duchess's lady's maid. And in the intervening years since the Duchess's death, she has worked her way up and she is now the housekeeper of the house. Mrs. Coulson and the Duchess were very close. Um, and just little hints in the way that this is like, I've kind of always thought they had a thing. Like, they, I've, I've always thought that they may have been, um, in a relationship. That's just how I've read it. Not how everybody else has read it, but that's how I have read it. Um, and the way that, uh, Mrs. Colson talks about her relationship with the Duchess and the, then how they, you know, watched after Simon, um, is very important. And then it's Mrs. Colson that, uh, kind of helps shake Daphne into realizing that actually Simon can likely have children. There but, are no physical impediments. But that's true in the in the show as well. It's just more vague. That's it's. I, I know they added the bit about Rose, but like in the show, it's she serves she serves the same purpose. It's just less direct. I think it is. Um, but yeah. So they, they've pretty to me though they've given. They gave a lot of Mrs. Coulson's kind of story to Lady Danbury, especially like the the night the night that 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 the Duchess died. Mrs. Coulson was there. Mrs. Coulson, you know, held her throughout all of her miscarriages and pregnancies. We've only talked about that through Lady Danbury's eyes so far in the show, mm-hmm. and I think that makes a lot of sense for an adaptation. Oh, absolutely. For- <clears throat> It it enables us to understand that about Simon's background much earlier on. Yeah. In the show. So I think I think as an adaptation that was a good choice. Yeah, and then um same and I, I agree with it. Um I don't necessarily feel the same about her going to Rose and saying, Tell me how tell me where babies come from. Um I feel like they've made this the Daphne in the show a little idiot. bit more naive. Yeah, we'll go with idiot. Sure, that's fine. <laughs> that na- naive is fair. I mean, because she's very naive in the book, but but not really because of her own fault. And I'm not, it's not exactly her own fault in the show either, but it's she's just so aggressively naive that you have to just be like, you, when you look around and see that her yeah. siblings aren't the same way, you know, Eloise would have bullied her brothers into into like giving her the talk or something by this point. So it, yeah, it's that extra scene with Rose seems a little unnecessary. Um, But there, but there we go. We needed like, to take the audience's hand and, and show us exactly what we were supposed to be thinking. Yeah. So, um, yeah, so we meet Mrs. Coulson and then we also meet the pregnant village lady. <laughs> she is so pregnant. She's so pregnant. She's so pregnant. So pregnant. Um, and we meet her little daughter, Ada, who's very cute. I love that you know her name. Yeah. Why wouldn't I know her name? Yeah. Okay. They say it. They, she says, "Ada, come here." Like she talks to her daughter and uses her name. All right. So what we're gonna do today? Well, we were gonna do a speedy recap and then a more leisurely recap, but we've essentially already done it. I mean, the speedy recap is sex, sex, sex. 
uh, Marina drama sex stuff that we'll talk about and later. Really horrible shit at the end, aka stuff yes. we'll talk about later. Yep. So, so that's basically that's the basically the episode. Um, oh, and Daphne snubs some pig farmers. I that that did not. Okay, we'll talk about that when we get there. Whatever. So open on Cliveden honeymoon. Yes. The greeting line of servants, which is a fixture in like all Regency romances. Yes. And they go up, and Simon's like, Daphne's like, Miss or Mrs. Colson says. I've got, you know, a lovely this for you in the patio, and I've got this, this, and this, and Simon's like, uh, yeah, Mrs. Coulson, like, I'm really great to see ya, but really what I want to go do is fuck my wife. And... That's a direct quote, Direct quote. Direct quote. He tells her, I want to fuck my wife. Um, and Daphne's like, oh my god, Simon, they will see us, and he's like, I don't care. I have to say the, like, the moment where she walks inside the enormous house and or castle, whatever, and like looks up, it's just I had this moment of like, this is not Jane Austen, no. <laughs> which we'll talk about this more later. But like this, it's not supposed to be Jane Austen. I know that that's how it was marketed because there's a huge Jane Austen audience out there in the world. But like, this is a different thing. But I, I did have a moment of like, this is not a Pemberley uh, Darcy's like fine estate and his management of it stands in for his fine character that none of that. This is just she marries the Duke. It's an enormous house and they go have sex. <laughs> basically yep so that's that's the opening so then we're back in london <laughs> and we're back in london uh and there's a garden party slash maze question mark yeah, yeah. um i kind of like this scene so i like the little snippets of so we don't get much of the bridgerton family in this episode we really don't which we shouldn't but the little snippets of it that we do get are all kind of revolving around gregory and hyacinth doing something naughty and the older brothers being like what the hell are you doing Oh, I missed that. So, like, in the first one, um, in the garden party, they are, like, in front of Violet and uh, whoever she- Eloise, and they're kind of doing something naughty, and they take off the other direction, and both Benedict and Anthony turn, and they kind of, like, look out, and you can see that they're saying something to them. Oh, I totally missed that. <laughs> but, thing, and then later on in the episode... Um, they're at breakfast, and you can see Gregory and Hyacinth are, again, causing mischief and mayhem of some sort. And Benedict's trying to, like, intervene and corral them, and then he's like, well, Colin's here, guys, we should go. Okay. <laughs> and gets them to I get like up that. and leave. Um. So, again, I, like, the idea that... It's not just Violet raising these children, especially her, especially with a special emphasis on her younger children. Um, it is a kind of family thing. Everybody looks out for Gregory and Hyacinth. Explains a lot about Gregory's character, but oh my gosh. hey, Hyacinth turned out fine. Hyacinth turned out she's great, even younger than him, and I love her. But <laughs> anyway, <laughs> um, so yeah, so little cute scenes like that, I still really enjoy, and I liked mm-hmm. these little snippets that we got. Anywho, that's a tangent. I'm done yeah. talking now. So, so it's it's very like very fancy, colorful, lavish. Like we we're seeing these little pockets of people chatting. We get, you know, Penelope and Eloise are eyeing each other, which then by the end of the episode they're they're finally reconciled. So we get a little there. There's some tension there right now. When we get a, a sort of a, a small thread that goes through this episode and later on is that Violet is is really pressuring Eloise to let her hem down, pull her hair up, like stop being a 16 year old girl and start being a woman on the marriage market just uh, 
basically just sliding right back into Daphne's shoes and, and Eloise's anxiety around that and, and resistance to it. Yes. Um, yes. Um, and then, so then as Colin announces the, his engagement with Marina, which it's, we really get a sense that women aren't the only naive people in the show no. with this episode because Colin is so naive in this episode. Oh my like, God. Like it reminds you of how young he is really, but it's also just like, oh honey, no. I kind of like that Anthony kind of calls Colin out about being so young. Yeah. And we'll get to that in just a second. We will get though, to that. It's really it good. It is really good. Um, well, yeah, we'll get to that. But um, I really love how they announce it, and Mrs. Featherington's like, oh my gosh, it's so exciting. Yeah. And then you turn to the Bridgertons, and Anthony and Violet are just like, what the fuck just happened? I, I love that because Violet's face is completely blank and gracious. Like she's got her game face on. Like we know from her reactions to other things that like that would not be her expression if she was really excited. But like she's totally classy. Anthony is like outraged, and Benedict just looks happy, <laughs> which makes me. It's it was so like looking at like okay, Violet's playing the game. Anthony is like confused and upset, and then Benedict's just like vaguely like oh how nice. <laughs> Head in the clouds. Oh, I have uh, brothers like that. Anyway, I really like Violet's line to Anthony of uh, "Put on a brave face. We'll discuss this later." People are looking at us. People are looking. Yeah. And then we have Penelope's heartbreaking over in the court, like not corner, but uh, you know, metaphorical corner. Yeah. And she's wearing the- she's wearing these like pink polka dot gloves, and it- and she's just sad. So it's not very fun to watch. It's not. Uh, It's not. So then we're in Anthony's study for the classic Anthony scold time. Uh, Colin is hilariously like chill and oblivious. I love Anthony's line to, you know. Yeah. um, Where he's basically like, why are you getting married? And Colin's like, why does anybody get married? Love. And I do kind of have to agree with Anthony that in the sense that Maria's only been out for a couple of weeks. And most of those weeks, she was actually taken back off the market she because sick. she was, quote unquote, ill. Yeah. So. And Colin has talked to her a handful of times. Yeah. So I'm sorry. You you fancy yourself in love? Like, I mean, given, and I say this in comparing this cat, this relationship to Simon and Daphne's relationship at this point, I would like to really emphasize at this point where we are in the mm-hmm. show. Yes. A few minutes into the show episode yeah um it is believable that at this point daphne and simon could potentially at some point fall in love because we've seen their relationship grow from episode to episode that is not the case with marina and colin but also to anthony's point well it's just so naive of colin to say why is anyone married for love come on this is we're watching a show about 19th century marriage where that's not the focus of Colin knows this. No. So it's very naive. I I cracked up at the really douchey line by Anthony. This is my fault for not taking you to brothels. <laughs> right? <laughs> okay, Anthony. <laughs> That's one perspective. Okay, sure. Uh, Anthony, and then yep. a really childish Colin makes um kind of an interesting interesting point where he says well, I'm older than Daphne and you are happy to marry her off. And Anthony says, it's not the same and you know it, which is true. But it's also where, again, this hypocrisy is highlighted um, and we're contrasting with 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 Daphne and like her sort of journey at the beginning of the season to like 
with marriage and with Anthony. Um, and, and it's really interesting to see this role with different genders. Um, but Anthony still ends up disappointing his sibling. He does. Um, Even though this time he's making sense. This time he's making sense. And I think the thing about this for me is, and maybe this makes me, I, I don't know what this makes me, but um, at this time, and again, we've stated this multiple times, but I'm going to say it again. It was very rare for somebody this young to get married. For a man. For a man. That's what, I'm, for, I mean, that's what I meant yeah. to say. A man. For a man this young to get married. Um, in I'm going to kind of tr- throw this back to the books a little bit again. Um, when Colin finally gets his story, he's like... 32 or th- he's like 32 or 33 years old at that point um and he in the books he's only like a year maybe a year and a half older than Daphne so in the Daph in the show Daphne is like 18 or 19 and mm-hmm. so that would make Colin either 20 or 19 or 19 or 20. or 20 so he's still very very young and this yeah. is something that in society today we still kind of scoff at when people get yet married that young yeah, I had I I always think of this conversation I had in a class in college and it was this room full of women students and we were talking at something in a book that was like written in uh, decades ago and everyone was like yes I've experienced this where basically most of the class raised their hand to say I have experienced like at least at least comments or pressure social pressure from family and friends um, to to be dating at a certain age and to to be in a relationship that you're too old to not be in a relationship and then the people who didn't raise their hands then said I have faced pressure for being in a relationship too young my husband and I got married you know at a very young age and everyone told us not to and everyone has been scolding us for it and it's just a what a weird thing to no matter what you do. Yeah. So that always really stuck with me that I had this classmate who was sort of um, treated a certain way for being married young. No, it is. It's weird that we we stigmatize it. But um, yeah. And we stigmatize being married o- older as well. It's it's very yeah, weird. It, no, it is. <laughs> like there's there's like a, a very slim gap of uh, acceptable years for marriage. I mean, it's the same thing for people who get engaged, you know, three or four months after they meet. Um and like are like criticized and everything like that. Well, it's too soon. Um, at that that means nothing. I am the product of a relationship that were that was engaged six weeks after they met, <laughs> married a year later, <laughs> and they've been together for almost forty years. So you know it it tr- it's not a signifier of anything. It truly isn't. Um, but again, it's just something that we as a society have set in our minds. Mm-hmm. So then we go to back to Cliveden, which I think I keep pronouncing it differently, but it's a weird word. <laughs> so uh, here's my thing. Um, first of all, I don't know. I have a, a note that says, yes, great idea to keep in the dark. Oh, yeah. It's because Daphne's like, oh, uh, now I understand about sex and like why mothers don't tell their daughters. And I was like, great, great idea to keep everyone in the dark about sex because it would be too distracting if you knew anything i totally rolled my eyes at that scene i was like i was dumb why why yeah this whole scene annoyed me because i was like so then basically daphne's like oh simon enough of this sexy times it's you know it's time for me to be a duchess and i'm like girl stay in bed it's not a real job no just enjoy yourself and then also please daphne don't talk about your mother and servants while you're in bed just just stop it (laughs) stop it 
Anyway. <laughs> no, I agree. No, I was getting like, I was like, just, girl, you got time for that. Like, yeah, that's not, it's not a real job. I know. <laughs> yeah, it's not a real job. It's not stop. a real job. Just stop. No. Yeah. Um, And then, and then Jeffries comes in, the butler, and basically tells Simon to get his ass in gear and like get to work, which... It's sort of a, 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 a not even a theme because it's such a like a thin thread in this episode, but it's reoccurring and it's like it's kind of frustrating to watch. It's like, oh, my gosh, you you, you need to be responsible. Like Simon clearly takes this as like, a oh, my gosh, I need to, to like do as well as my father because he was a jerk and he he was responsible to his mm-hmm. tenants. But for my, my thing is like. Uh, you should have already been doing this. Like, how do you not know some of this stuff? And that's the thing that kind of got me. Again, like I said, I'm going to talk a lot about adaption this week. That's very not Simon in the books. In the books, Simon is very aware of the responsibility he has towards the other people that he is responsible for, a.k.a. his tenants. He's very responsible and he's all about control, personal control in the books. Uh, And he's just sort of this freewheeling, like, sexy character in the show like I my question mark in my voice is because like I don't really know what else he is other than like he travels and like runs away from responsibilities I guess and had a traumatic childhood mm-hmm. that's eh? yeah there's a lot more to him in the book yeah and in, in the book he he travels he travels to get away from his father it's not like he's traveling for the sake of traveling and then once his father dies he comes back and takes over everything because that's his yeah. job. That's what he he is meant to do. Mm-hmm. Um, then we have the awkward housekeeping tour with Daphne and Mrs. Coulson. And Daphne is so tone deaf and oblivious. It is just cringeworthy. It is cringeworthy. Um, I, I do think that it's okay when she starts talking about redecorating. I think that's absolutely okay. I think that that's expected as a new duchess. And the way that the look that Mrs. Coulson gave her, I was like, Calm your tits, Mrs. Okay. Coulson. Like yeah. that, like it. That is her right as the Duchess to change shit. Yeah. Other, but stuff, she does keep stumbling into things. Other stuff that Daphne's. Like, I'm like, oh my god, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. Stop. And then we have the very dramatic, like nursery moment where, yet again, a reminder yeah. of the children that they are not likely to have. It's just annoying that it like you have to have children for true love, even though not everyone in this book agrees with that. But anyway, yeah. we'll get there. So now we can move on to the big ass dining table. Yeah, and um, it's a good scene. It is a good scene. I like this scene um, when D- Simon mm-hmm. walks in and Daphne is sitting at the table, and he's like, "Are we expecting like a huge group of people?" And expecting royalty. The footman goes, "Well, the, his grace preferred a formal setting for dinner." And you can tell that both Daphne and Simon are like, this is ridiculous. Like, this this is not necessary when it's just the two of us. It's like echoey is how big yes. and direct it is. It's so awkward. It's pretty funny. And so I... But then they have this really sweet, like, interplay between the couple. I do. I, I like this conversation between them. And I, I really like how Simon goes, you're just, you're so far away. And she goes, well, that's easily fixed. And so she moves her stuff down. The footmen are all just kind of looking at each other going like, what are they doing? What are they doing? What What is going on right now? And Simon is the one who gets up and brings a chair over. It's not one of the footmen, which I think is really funny. And um, the way Daphne behaves in the scene, it makes me like endears me to her so much more yes. than I have been in the last couple episodes. Like she just she acts a little bit more adult 
and we, I realized like she's kind of creating actions, like she's making decisions as an adult at this point, as like a married woman separate from her family. Um, the previous decisions she's made for herself have been poor decisions. <laughs> so, so anyway, so it's, it's cute. And, and, you know, she kind of gracefully handles the situation and, and just goes with it and doesn't look to anyone else for permission. I don't know. I thought, I thought it really showcased her in a nice way and certainly Simon in in a playful way. No, I agree. Um, I like, I like that. We do have a kind of a sense of foreboding here, I think, as Simon pulls the classic romance novel move and distracts Daphne with sex, which is she kind of asks, like, well, why don't you mind that I'm changing everything about your childhood home? And we really see how ignorant she is about his backstory, even though we, the audience, know it. And he just starts, like, tugging off her glove. And, like, there's this, like, increase in intimacy. And, it's again, it's a really nice scene, but we see him kind of shifting the conversation away from his past. All right, the uh, sex montage. Lydia, go. Oh my god. Okay. Not that I didn't enjoy this. Like when I say like, oh my god. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I was like, wait, Lydia, this is not a chore for you. Uh, I enjoyed this, but it just yeah. So they have sex on the pillar, and then it rains, and then they go and have sex on the patio. In the fo- in the folly. Folly. What's that? It's like, you know, the like, uh, it was uh, in vogue at this time where they would have architects build like a pseudo Roman or Greek like, oh. with the columns and then it would look like ruins on their property. And then, of course, in later years, it would just be this like decrepit building and then people would have to deal with it. But so it's that's a very common thing in Regency romance novels is having the folly or having sex in the folly or having someone try to murder you in the folly. Oh. Yeah. So that's that's what I thought this was. Uh, look at that, listeners. I learned something new every day. I never knew that. That's so cool. Regent yeah. I was also like to say Regency era. I'm a history major. Regency era is not my strong suit. Most of my studies were in like ancient studies. <laughs> this is not my strong suit. So that's really cool though. And it makes a lot of sense for that time period as to why we have all these yeah. like really rando buildings like that. But yeah, that was sort of a thing, uh like a, a trend that aristocrats would have on their enormous properties just to kind of like harken back to antiquity antiquity. so there's these fake um fake follies um okay sorry i take back they have sex on the folly in the folly on the folly in the rain rain. um and then uh, they have sex on the riverbank on a picnic blanket on a picnic blanket in broad fucking daylight and carriages are going by what? Yes, there's like people in oh. the background as they're sexing oh. on the the hill. I didn't notice that. And I was just like, "That's not cool, dudes." Yeah, because the the point of all that is that like he has an enormous property, so there shouldn't be anyone anywhere near them. Yeah, no, there's like there's like people in the background of that shot that are like weird, like walking around and that. doing their daily business, and then like you look <laughs> over, you know, twenty fifty yards down the way, and there's do this the Duke and Duchess just having at it. I didn't know that. I was just distracted because I was thinking about an interview that we saw where they talked about how what well, the sunny day was all post production and it was actually gray and like freezing and I just thought how miserable that must be. Oh, totally. Um, I like I I did did like that in that shot. Um, Daphne is pr- is fairly well covered. Like Simon's bare ass naked. And he's, like, second on her and everything. But then Daphne's pretty much covered. And, like, I think that was, like, a very, like, conscious choice of, like, 
hey, we're sexing in public, so she should be covered. He doesn't need to be covered, though. Uh, speaking of conscious choice, this is uh, we have definitely talked about this in the past on the podcast, but I don't think uh, in any of the specific episode uh, from Netflix episodes. <laughs> and that is uh, that they used an intimacy coordinator to film this series. Yes, they did. And I thought that it would be a good thing to bring up in an episode that has a lot of sex scenes. I totally love this. I love mm-hmm. as a as an audience member, as a viewer, knowing that there was an intimacy coordinator on set. Um, this is this has been described as like the equivalent of like a fight choreographer for uh, fight scenes. And there's so many layers to this. Why it's so good. One is, of course, it's it helps make the actors more comfortable. Mm-hmm. Because there, there's consent every step of the way. There's very clear, like, here's what's going to happen. Here's, you know, we're, we're going to be touching where. And um, it, it also is a way to kind of control, like, what things are going on in, in the in the filming around you. Um, but it's also good because, like, just in terms of, like, the story. Because how does a director know how to shoot a kiss that actually looks good on screen and so an intimacy coordinator comes in and is like okay like what is necessary why are we doing this let's make sure we show what we want to show and like let's make this like look good and like we can cut out a lot of unnecessary stuff and a lot of unnecessary hours of discomfort so i really love that i do too um whenever i think about an intimacy coordinator like position and how it's very needed there's always an interview that comes to mind from a, a couple of years ago um Samuel L. Jackson and Kira Knightley were on the Graham Norton show, and they're talking about sex scenes as actors and actresses. And Sam Jackson goes on to say, you know, here's how it kind of goes between us. Like, and this is before, like, intimacy coordinator was really a thing. It's still yeah, isn't it's really definitely a more thing. recent. Um, yes. But he talks about, you know, all the stuff that, he, you know, because he says it's not just... Uh, she, she Kira Knightley talks about how it's at, how it's weird for her, especially during like um she was talking about a filming atonement with James McAvoy, and the stuff that she was asked to do. Like she was asked on the fly to wank off James' character in atonement in the library. Like that was done on the fly. That, I guess that wasn't part of the script, and so she did it. But she was just like, okay, it just it was it just again, just it happened. She had to do it on set. And then Samuel L. Jackson goes on there and he says, it's also awkward for us as dudes because we have to, like, he's the one that is talking. We're the ones establishing boundaries with each other. There's not somebody else there establishing those boundaries. So he goes, you know, I go up to my actress and say, where can I touch you? Where can't I touch you? I'm going to apologize if I get excited and I start to, you know, get hard. Um, I'm also going to apologize if I don't. I don't want you to get offended if you don't think I'm into you. Like, and it's little things like that that, like, we as the viewers don't see. Not to mention that usually the film industry is not gender friendly. Like, it's just, it's not. So when you're filming the intimate scenes, you're usually in a room with, like, 20 dudes. There's very few women on these in these areas on film and it's usually a bunch as much as you can say it's a quote-unquote closed set for some of these stuff it's it's not not. yeah and that's that's i've read and heard uh so many interviews and 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 stories coming out of sets it's very easy to look up Uh, it's just really uncomfortable and like a lot of times boundaries are established and then completely thrown out the window while filming and so there's like yeah we'll have a closed set and then there's like 100 people in the room and there's a pause between takes or it'll be 
it'll take a really, really long time to film because the director doesn't like know what to ask for and what to do or isn't clear or it's just trying for shock factor. So I've read some things where it says like when they do hire an intimacy coordinator, they say, well, why are we actually doing this? Like, what are you trying to convey? And then it actually changes some of the stuff. And, and like, yeah, it's just really disturbing to think of, oh, a movie I'm watching had all these boundary violations at the very oh, yeah. least for the actor and actress involved. And it was really uncomfortable for them. And it, it was and that is not necessary. And mm-hmm. basically, if a film has an intimacy coordinator, it does make the news. So that's like you said, it, it is it is newer, but it isn't established yet. I think the favorite um, had one and that sort of made the news. I first heard of this occupation at all um, because they had one uh, on Gentleman Jack, mm-hmm. the TV show. I think that was one of like the first big ones and they talked about the actors talked about like what it was like to have that and I just I love thinking that not only is it good for story and everything but it's so good for the actors and and I won't mention any films by name because you can all do your research but there's so many films that have come out and afterwards it's the actors like I felt exploited I felt really not okay about like Mm -hmm. what I was pressured to do by the director so it, it definitely is a relief to know there is one yeah um I'm trying to think the first time I heard about intimacy coordinators, somebody was talking about a play they were doing. So they're they're used in in all forms of entertainment. It's not just films. They're also used for theater. Um, which I think is actually, I mean, it's important in film. Like, do not get me wrong, it's really important in film. I think it's even more important to be doing that stuff within the theater community, though, because it's happening every night. Because it's happening every night, over and over again, and you are exposed. Like when you're on stage, you are exposing yourself every single night that you were up there, um, regardless or not whether you're taking your clothes off. But then you have to add yes. the, another layer of exposure. If you're up there and you're taking your clothes off and you're exposing yourself to the audience in a different way as well. Um, and so the first one that I heard about was about uh, was for a stage production. And th- that that interview, I can't I can't. It was a couple of years ago and I can't remember what article it was or anything like that. But it was a really interesting article talking about how this person worked with the, the two leads to create these scenes Um to make their work and their performance shine brighter because of things they didn't have to necessarily worry about as much because they had somebody talking this through with them. I absolutely, I, yeah, I think that's absolutely wonderful. Uh, on a sort of a, a cheerful, fun, happy note, if you want to read a romance novel about this, uh, Alexis Daria's You Had Me at Ola yes. has two telenovela soap stars and the, they do start to fall in love in the book but they have an intimacy coordinator for the sex scenes and it's it's really nice reading about like it, it's a fun thing to read about and to see like how much um uh comfort it brings these fictional actors to be able to have like this thing i don't know i'm not describing it well but if you want to read a romance novel version of this there's you had me at ola yes so okay so that just seemed like worth bringing up because it's a very sex filled episode it, it um, is. but we haven't finished all the all the sex montage so Lydia Ugh, let's get this gosh. going so then um, then they have sex in the library uh, I, I the, the inner librarian in me was like please please don't do that to books <laughs> <laughs> please don't do that to books um, and like okay so straight up also sex in the library they're fucking in the library like that that's not sex they are fucking Okay. There's a difference. I they, like the sex in this episode is much better than their wedding night. Like just in general, like he's not just sticking it in her and like calling it good. 
Yeah, it, it's 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 an improvement. Um, it's I an feel like it's so awkward. I know it's supposed to be funny, but it's just so awkward that all the servants are like listening in and giggling at the door. I guess it's just to remind us, like these rich people are just having sex at every part of this estate, and yes, there are still servants around. It just makes me it makes me giggle even more that like, uh, like I'm watching this and I'm thinking like, oh, you know all the servants knew what was going on like in Downton Abbey and everything like that and like Downton Abbey oh, is yeah. like the purest cleanest like we there's no sex on Downton Abbey <laughs> I feel like that's not true that we really see anyway from like okay. what I like from like what I remember about Na- Downton Abbey it's very clean like it's very chaste and very like fade to black anyway yeah um. Okay, so okay. more sex. So then there's just this little moment, yeah. And then this little moment between Daphne and Rose. Where they're giggling about her. her hair is tangled, and then Daphne just is like, gosh, I've been so busy with all these activities, tee-hee-hee. I'm so surprised that Simon is not physically impaired. Ugh, what? Why? I I like the actors who plays Rose. I think she does a nice job, but I think most of the scenes with Daphne and Rose could have been cut. Same. Just generally in the series, with like three exceptions. I don't know. Anyway, anyway, so then we go to Bridgerton House. It's morning, and they are all having breakfast. And Colin, Colin walks, walks in, in, and Benedict's like, "Okay, guys, well, we're gonna go so that Mother and Colin can have a conversation." Hyacinth is Hyacinth. Everyone gets out of the breakfast room, and then Violet has her little chat. Um, and I think it's a very and Colin is just wrong. Yes, <laughs> um, I do feel for Violet in the sense where she's just like, I didn't expect like more of you to. I didn't feel for her for that because I was like, girl, you're already pushing Eloise out the door, so don't give me this. I know it's like a quote from one of the books where she's like, I didn't expect you to leave like me so soon, but I just felt like that's a quote from um, one of the books. I don't I can't I can't back that up. I can't tell you what book it's from. It felt like I, I thought she said something like this to, to one of her children at some point in the books. She could have. I'm sorry, I listeners. Remember. I know this is our 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 podcast, but you know what? We read the books months ago. So true. Sorry. I, I think that that's something a sentiment that Violet expresses to one of her children. I couldn't tell you which child. So I don't know if it's true, but it, it feels right. That's all I can say. Um, but it just frustrated me because I was like, okay, yes, but also you're already pushing Eloise out the door and Eloise doesn't want to be out the door. I absolutely see your point and I do agree with that now that I start to think about that. Even even so, it would still be another year for Eloise. So like, I get what she's saying, but it just bugged me. Um, I get that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I respect that. So Colin makes some crack about Eloise that I didn't appreciate. And then he, he tells, like Violet says, well, I thought you were just flirting. You flirt with a lot of women. And he says, no, we were courting. And I'm like, honey, no, you you're were not actually courting. Flirting. Stop. You weren't courting her. It's you're, you're misrepresenting things. And then we get a little tiny line from Colin about no one takes me seriously, which sounds a little bit silly and frivolous, I think. But this is a huge part, as we know, at Lydia, of Colin's book and Colin's story. And I think it's laying the seeds of no one takes him seriously. No, I agree. And when he said, this is what pissed me off about that scene, was, like, I really wanted to say, that's not true. You just haven't seen it yet. About what? I do agree that people don't take him seriously. I don't think, I think it's a very generalized statement. There are people who do take him seriously, and he doesn't see it. That's what I'm trying to get at. Right, right. But I'm trying to get it without, like, explicitly stating a spoiler. 
But my, my thing is, because I've read the books, I like get why he's saying that. Yes. But the thing to me in the books, people didn't take him seriously because he's funny and charming. Yes. And he's always the comic relief and like the optimist and the person there joking around and lightening the situation. And so they don't take him seriously because he is this sort of like joyful, charming comic relief. And here it's like, I'm young and I'm petulant and people don't take me seriously, even though I wasn't even a, a, a minor side character until like the like last episode. Absolutely. So no, anyway, I agree. But okay. So moving we on. Go to the Featheringtons. Yeah. We- and we sit through what might be the most freaking awkward 10 minutes of this episode so far. Oh, interesting. I just, it's, it's cringeworthy watching all of these. It, it's super cringeworthy watching Philippa and Prudence talk to Marina about, do you think he'll introduce us to some of his friends? And kind of Marina saying, oh, yes, that will be something that we do. And you guys will make good matches because of it, because of my connection to the Bridgertons. And then we see Penn in the corner and we see Marina gets up to try to appease Penn mm-hmm. and epically fails at it. Like Penn yeah. is having none of this bullshit. Yeah, she's like, don't mock me. Don't pity me. Don't like really. You just want my silence. And they're not friends anymore at this point, I think. And the thing is, or like, I truly don't think Marina is doing any of that. Like, Penn, I think, thinks of it no. as being malicious to her. And and it's not, it's malicious, not malicious. And it's not towards anyone. It's just Marina trying to, to survive. Trying to survive. With her baby. It is. And um, especially with the, you know, the comment about, oh, your dress is pretty. And like, Penn immediately backs off saying, St- don't mock me because I know my dress isn't pretty or. You know, little hints like that where just overall Penelope's very hurt by Yeah, and she gets she gets nasty on. in this episode. She does. And I'm, I totally I, understand totally. why. And I she does have like her self righteousness about the morality of what Marina's doing is is correct. Um but I can't help but think if Marina had been the protagonist of the story, how would we feel about what she's doing? Do you know what I mean? Yeah. It's not like she what she's doing is right, but it's it's kind of murky and it's not it's not like my favorite storyline, I guess. It, no, I saying. it's not my favorite storyline either. Um and it like a lot of this, like I'm I'm basically my overall feeling for this episode is nobody is right in this episode. Nobody has a higher moral ground in this episode. Everybody is wrong. Yeah, that's fair. Um, particularly other characters more than other, you know, yeah. there's, just, there's, there's wrongness all over the place. But mm-hmm. I don't fault Marina for going after Colin. I really don't. Um, But it is deception. But it is deception. And it, and it hurtful. in some of the articles I've read for this week, they so a couple of them kind of did bring up the issue of Colin consenting to raise Marina's children without mm-hmm. actually consenting to raise yeah, Marina's children because he's not consenting to it. He doesn't know about it. Yeah. He's not consenting to fatherhood. He's not. Immediate fatherhood. Yeah. It's a it's a huge issue. It's a huge issue. And so um, whereas Penn is coming at it from I love Colin and I don't want to see him hurt this way. Yeah. Um, uh, crucially, 
Penelope tells Marina she won't condone her actions and she promises that she will never bring scandal down upon either Marina or her family, which is something that is uh, very concerning to Marina. Yes. Uh, Then we have um, Marina leaving and Philippa and Prudence talking to one another. And it's just this really cringeworthy Prudence and Philippa are are giggling about the baby and like saying that like Colin and Marina will make a beautiful baby and, you know, oh, he's not the don't be an idiot. He's not the father. Remember? And then she says, oh, I forgot. And they just giggle. And Penelope just like just furiously cuts in like you're making a mockery out of him. Um, And then there's that you're no fun anymore. And then she nastily says, was I ever? Yeah, which I kind of... And it's it's awkward. I kind of agree with Penn. Like, I think she's very much been treated, for the most part, the outsider of her family. Yeah. Um, Time and time again, as we've seen her mother, you know, oh, Penelope, put down your books. Um, You don't play Penelope. You're, you know, they're forcing a 16-year-old to become an adult. In a certain mold. In certain mold. And it's just, it, yeah. Yeah. It's rough. It's very rough. Um, And now you have it put her in a situation where she's not sure what to do. Because she knows what is happening is not right. I'm not going to say it's wrong because. I, I would say it's wrong, but it's also like, what else is Marina supposed to do? Exactly. Um, it's this, the society they live in has deliberately narrowed women's choices, and th- that's one of the main issues that she's up against. And I think um, Penelope recognizes that. Like, she sees yeah. the, the, the issue of this and is it doesn't really know what or who to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So Yeah, there's no one to talk to about it because it's a secret and who's she supposed to tell? So so then they're at the Mideast and we have, again, more Eloise being very, very anxious about trying to pin up her hair and about Violet trying to get her to pin up her hair and let her hem down and move into the marriage market. And it's it's kind of rough to see Eloise like so anxious about this happening and not being able to stop it. Uh, but there's nothing more to say about it, really. That's just what we're shown. Yeah, and then um, we see Marina kind of play some upper-handedness with uh, Madame Delacroix. Just so, yeah, Portia and Marina walk in, and it's super awkward with the with the Bridgertons, and then and then Marina threatens the Medeast. And my thing is, um, excuse me, Marina, don't threaten your Medeast when your secret baby is starting to show, and she's the one who's measuring you for dresses. That's I like not really a spoiler. Everyone, nothing. No, this this goes nowhere. But it should, in my opinion, like I, I can't believe the way that they're. She threatens the Mideast to to keep to keep giving them clothes like for free because they're not paying up their accounts. And the power dynamic here is is ridiculous. Not that Marina has power, but like it's not it's not cool. And I was just like, how how are you not more concerned that she's not going to tell everyone that you're pregnant? Yeah. Anyway. But that doesn't happen. So then no. we go to the village fair in Clevedon, which I thought was dumb. Um. It kind of is. Um, Daphne or Simon tells Daphne that she needs to choose a pig for the winner. He does not tell her that, oh, by the way, Why? that in choosing this pig, you're going to give one of these farmers like contract work with our house for the next year. Why the fuck would she Why? need to know that? Why the fuck would she need to know that? 
Um, and then when she when she's like they all win, he just smiles indulgently and like does he even know like what it, it it's it's maybe understand yeah this is just ridiculous uh and it's just like the Duke and Duchess out with like the peasants you know like the the lower classes who are colorfully dressed and they're so simple and like somehow they're not yeah when Daphne calls the tie they're just this underwhelmed reluctant clap and no one reacts to that no like. It's, I know this is this whole scene is kind of like a classic in Regency romance, but like, eh, cringy. And then like Simon doesn't seem to know up from down about his tenants or his steward. He didn't know that the rents were increased. He didn't like it just was like, what are you doing with your life? There's another note in here where the 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 um the tenant is like, oh, no, your father was a fair man. Yes, the man in the ginormous straw hat. Yes. Tells him this. And again, that's another like. Okay, so just straight up, listeners, do you think the man that has treated Simon so horribly <laughs> is going to be fair with his tenants? Like, let's just Here's- think about this. <laughs> let's I, just. My think thing about- is, when we talked about him, he, he was so concerned with his status. He wanted his wife to bear him an heir. He wanted his heir to be perfect. He wanted to keep his status. And I think it is conceivable that he would run his, that he would manage his lands well because he wanted to because everything was about the dukedom and i think that like twist of like okay if you have someone who you know personally to 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 i don't want to just say to be a bad person but like who who you know treats people horribly and then to the outside world that is upstanding citizen like that that happens in real life so like i found that believable of like to everyone else the duke is this responsible like in the book, everyone would come up to Simon and say, like, oh, you look just like your father, and he's such a great man. Like, so many people would come up to, to Simon in the book and say, your father was such a great man. And it was so painful for him because he knew how abominably he'd been treated. But to everyone else, the Duke was able to keep up this facade of being a good Duke. So so that's why I believed it. But I, I see what I see your point. I, do, I don't believe it, especially. And again, it's because in there's a throw, a throw, another throwaway line in the second epilogue where Daphne is reading the fa- the letters that um, Simon's father left for him, and she's reading them, and she's talking. He's talking about their tenants, and um, we see that her his father made several remarks about how he thought this tenant was cheating him, and this person was cheating him, and this person, and Simon's like, these are all fine dudes, like. There's no gotcha. There's no cheating of here. Um, like he, she, Daphne's like your father was just a very suspicious man, and Simon's like, of course he was. Um, <clears throat> so again, it just it, to me, it's not reconciling that character in my head, especially okay. given that he is he is a very two dimensional character that we get in the second episode. We don't get any more of him other than. He's a horrible father, a horrible person. But he's also, but we also see him treating, you know, Lady Danbury not well. We're seeing him treat yes. other characters not well. So for me to, to to see him then turn around and say this, I don't believe that. That's not believable That's to fair. me as a character. So yeah. So anyway, so this man like belligerently confronts them, and you just think like Simon, what are you doing? And Daphne, like very in a very naive way, like sort of smooths it over, just in like in terms of the social conversation. Um, and then we have the crying child moment. And I, my reaction to this is, how is Daphne good at children? She 
seriously, again, she talks about it. She wants a family. I've never seen her with a child. Like Gregory and Hyacinth, her siblings, are running around all the time. And we see Benedict interacting with them. We see Anthony and Colin interacting with them. We never see like Daphne interacting with them except when Hyacinth is bugging her with questions and she like walks away. So I'm like her being like so good with children. I don't believe it. No, I, I that's completely true as well. Like I also agree. So then we have like I'm I'm personally at this point very concerned about the farmer's rent and livelihood. Uh, and we've seen how much money these people have so this should this should not be happening so they're walking through this field it's just absolutely beautiful the field is beautiful they're beautiful they're talking about the tenants uh rent and then immediately stop their livelihood is completely forgotten because Daphne blunders through this like I hope it didn't pain you to see me with all these children and look part of me cringed that she brought this up but the other part of me is like if they had been more blunt with each other about everything things would go more smoothly so this this whole thing of like for, screw the tenants like let's talk about uh the artificially co- you know created issues that we have stumbled into for ourselves yeah yeah oh boy right anyway so there's just this awkward conversation about like children and then Daphne sort of very calmly is like we'll have nieces and nephews and screaming babies to deal with and like Simon is like thrilled that like she's so happy to be married and be childless and you could you could just hear the other foot dropping and this like pretty scene where they're saying nice things to each other yeah. that are like not grounded in yeah. reality yeah so then we move on from there and it's nighttime back at the Featherington house and they're having dinner with Violet and Anthony and Marina comes down the stairs and Lady Featherington asks her to swish her dress to see to check and see if they can baby bump. see her baby bump. I feel like it's meant to be like you can kind of see it, but like not you really. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah. But uh, yeah. So uh, also at this point, like, well, I, I guess it really wouldn't matter because we all know that the the, col- the the column that we have seen so far is naive and kind of dumb. So I feel like you know on their wedding night he maybe would realize it, but maybe he wouldn't because <laughs> yeah, it's very unclear at this point. Um, Oh boy, yeah. Oh so, my god, Penelope. What? Oh my god, it just reminds me of that meme that I saw going around earlier last year when Star Wars: The Clone, the seventh season of Clone Wars came out, and it literally was a picture of Anakin Skywalker looking at a picture of like Padme, in which she's like visibly pregnant, and the caption was something like to the effect of like, "Do you think Anakin Skywalker just like?" doesn't realize that she's pregnant or just is choosing to ignore it and the caption was like i mean it's anakin you guys shouldn't assume he knows shit <laughs> and like that like that's kind of like you know again if if colin would he would he actually realize that she's pregnant or yeah it's a mystery anyway yeah. but so so penelope is kind of a jerk here she's sort of very smug and is like i find your plan wanting what about lady violet and it's kind of painful to ask because she just seems so kind of nasty and smug but again like i i, I get it i'm with her like mm-hmm. she's watching them hatch this plan to take advantage of someone she cares about so it's eh, it's just cringy yeah it's cringy all around speaking of cringy <clears throat> next scene oh it's so awkward yeah they're at the at Bridgerton house for that dinner that was mentioned a few scenes ago. No, they're at they're still at Featherington House. They're not at Bridgerton House. Oh. 
which is why I'm yeah sure. that's they're at they're in the featherington dining room that's why you know okay. they get up and why philippa and prudence are singing versus like okay another like one of like the bridgertons because it's at okay. the featherington it's not okay i didn't realize that. yeah no it's not the bridgertons they're at the featherington's house and they're in when penelope and colin go out to have that conversation in the hallway they're in the fe- like that's yeah. the same stairwell okay. that marina came down gotcha. there so they're at the featherington okay. still so i can't tell anything apart all right so then now it's dinner time at featherington house yeah um just again it's so cringeworthy um they're trying to you know show how marina would make a good wife for colin and you know talking about all of her various accomplishments and then colin is an idiot and like nags eloise basically to try to praise marina who to her credit is like oh let's not go with that um anthony i'll give anthony credit here he's actually doing a pretty good job of like deflecting and and just sort of like smoothing things over and and not being a not showing what he's thinking yeah so anyway then, it's just it's all it's all awkward and then it's awkward lady featherington is trying to push for a quicker marriage and then and it, at some point they leave dinner and they sit through god awful singing and then colin gets up to leave and pen follows him out and is trying to really kind of state you know you shouldn't do this you should marina is in love she's really trying to say marina's pregnant and she's trying not to say it so like vote you know like she's just not trying to because say it she right. doesn't want to get Ma- marina in trouble exactly she's trying to be very inconspicuous about it i guess she's trying to be, she's trying to be loyal to marina Thank and you. her family That's but she, she's trying to help yeah and so this is very awkward but i did like that it really showcases their friendship Mm -hmm. um we have colin being funny and charming and like very familiar with penelope and treating her like a sister and then she's upset but she's speaking to him again like very personally and so it's it's awkward because he's not getting it and she's getting more and more agitated but i like that it shows their friendship yeah and then marina comes out and sends penelope back into the room and they decide they're going to elope yeah she's really smart she gets she manipulates colin into it being his idea to elope, his idea to go to Gretna Green, his idea to get married right away. Uh, and that's what she needed to happen. And I think that's so. overall my issue with this storyline. It's the manipulation of not... It's man- the manipulation of many people. It's not just one person who's being manipulated. It's multiple mm-hmm. people who are being manipulated here. Not just by Marina. I would like to state that. Lady Featherington yeah. is in on it. There's other people in on it. It's the continuous yeah. manipulation. That's my issue with this storyline. Mm-hmm. it's just it's rough because it's like the old you know the pregnancy storyline is a is a staple mm-hmm. yeah so that's happening and then we go to cliveden yeah it's morning and daphne wakes alone but she's content she's walking in this pretty dress and like she stops in front of the nursery as if it's suddenly like a side shoot off the ground floor instead of upstairs like where anyway that just annoyed me um but really we're supposed to drive home mm-hmm. nursery children oh no i also think uh, it's and then Sorry, I also think it's supposed to kind of drive home that the honeymoon period is over. Simon is now working, uh, um, okay. trying to figure out the estates. Uh, yeah. He, quote unquote, doesn't have time for her. Mm-hmm. And also, what is she supposed to do? He's doing, oh, yeah. he's finally doing his job. And she's just like, she kind of feebly offers to distribute gift baskets, like clearly showing that she has no, real, like nothing to do all day. Um and then the housekeeper's horrified that she and Rose are picking lavender. She's changed her dress, and now she's walking awkwardly through the village. 
finally, like, she's not the it girl. Mm-hmm. Finally in the season, for this one moment, she's not. And she very naively asks Rose, like, should I have worn another dress? Because that's the only thing she can think of that might be going wrong. Like, the tone deafness of, like, we'll bring gift baskets to people who are being overtaxed. Yeah. <sighs> and then uh, Aiden's mother came up, comes up and explains to her her big faux pas at the fair. And Daphne is horrified. And also, like, again, like, nobody thought to explain this to her. In between this time... Yeah, this makes no sense. In between this time, between the fair and now, nobody has stopped to tell her. BTW, like, you need to go back and choose a fucking pig because that's how we get our meat for the fucking year. Like, again, like, it just, it's really frustrating that even <coughs> Mrs. Colson at this point should have stepped in and said, here's what you did wrong. Like, not this, like, yeah. constant, like, like little side notes and everything like that like just straight up you are wrong yeah i just think this whole drama is dumb like i get why it's in there but i don't think it's really dealt with much um it almost completely goes away after this although we'll we'll make a note of where it, it you know it's dealt with um so finally daphne gets smart and realizes she needs to ask mrs colson for help and she sits for tea with her and gets like the abridged version of of simon's childhood um daphne continues just like blundering on and like not understanding and then mrs colson gives us the big reveal of like how babies are made sort of sort of and then she goes and confirms with rose um and it is well very dramatic i take it back she has this conversation with mrs colson and then she and simon fuck on the desk and simon pulls out and finally daphne clicks it together rushes into Rose's room, asks how babies are made. Mm-hmm. And Rose is really shocked by this, obviously, because it's well into the honeymoon, but she's game, and, and I liked that. Um, so I I had a note that I liked it up to up to that point where Daphne is trying to figure out stuff after being deliberately kept in the dark. Yeah. Um, I, I kind of noted that in the show, it's totally Violet's fault for her being kept in the dark. And in the book... There's also an element of Simon being culpable because he ends up giving her like basically like a condensed version of sex ed and conveniently leaves out stuff that is to his benefit that she not know. I mean, I feel like I think it's more expressed in the book that Simon conveniently, but I think that's also the same here on the show. Like Simon is very like feels safe in the lack of her knowing that's true. I just think it's a it's a lot more it's a lot less clear on the show. Yes, in the show, on yes. the show, yeah. In the book, oh no, it's very clear that Simon is like, oh well, because she doesn't know, I don't actually have to explain it, and I can get away with it. Yeah. So, well, I actually think that that uh, as an idea of informed consent of what Daphne knows and doesn't know and is told and isn't told is worth discussing. We'll talk about that next episode because it comes up then. Yeah. Um. Really quickly, we need to go back a little bit. Uh, I know we're we're kind of running long in time, but we did uh, just between the big reveal of Mrs. Coulson and Daphne piecing together uh, everything. There's a scene at the Featheringtons where it's really important because um, Penelope is a detective, snoops around, finds letters, finds the forgeries, explains to Marina what happened. Uh, but to her surprise, Marina's like, it's too late. Um I'm not waiting for George anymore. I've given up on him. And 
Marina says, look, I'll be safe in the knowledge that my husband is good and kind, a good and kind man who won't toss me into the streets, mm-hmm. which is totally fair. Penelope asked what about Colin. And at this point, Marina really clocks that Penelope's in love with Colin um, and is really just like, I'm going to crush your childhood, your childish infatuation, your unrequited fantasy. Colin sees you like Hyacinth. <laughs> he sees me like a, a woman and a wife. And as a woman, I must make decisions for myself, and my child, even if they hurt your feelings. And I, that scene really, for me, points out that they're both right. And both wrong. And both wrong. They're both right and both wrong. Yeah. Like they're, again, yeah. this is the episode where nobody is right. There's yeah. no moral high ground for anybody in this episode. Yep. So, yeah. So that happens. And it's like, you really, I really feel for Penelope, but it's also like, Marina's not wrong. No, yeah. Uh, well, like agree. you said, she is wrong, but she's also right. So, yeah. So then we go into the scene. Um where they are in the study and everything. And so then we have this sort of moment where Daphne is really dazed and she sits through dinner and we look across the table and Simon's talking and laughing and it sort of filtered in through Daphne's mind of just being like, oh, he's been keeping this from me, that he's been keeping from me, that he's been using the pullout method because I didn't understand about anything. Um, And just as a quick side note, I completely missed this the first time, but I was so annoyed the second time by how i felt like the whole dumb village fair scene was just brought up and then dropped that i noticed that as they panned through this day's dinner like there's a pig on the table yeah there is so that's yeah so that okay fine somebody got the contract (laughs) yeah yeah and then they go into the bedroom and daphne pretends to be asleep uh, and then it's the next morning and now Simon's the one who wakes up in the empty bed and he's a bit confused by that. Uh, we have this rainy scene where Daphne is just sad in a matronly collared white dress under a white umbrella as the big hat dude yells about his fortunes being restored. And that's our whole resolution for this ridiculous side plot. Yeah. So. Yeah. And then. Oh. And then it's now it's evening. And at this point, we have 10 minutes left uh, in the episode. So this is the point at which, Lydia, you and I have to address um, this, yeah, this uh, complete lack of consent and sexual assault that is about to happen. So that's what we're going to talk about, everyone. A content warning right now. There will be a mark in our show notes as well. Um, And yeah. uh, Listen on as you will. Big, horrible things happen. Yeah, so that hasn't happened yet. So we're flashing on a really gorgeous portrait of the former Duchess. I really love the portraits in the show and like the portraits of the characters. I love it. Mm-hmm. Um, we see Daphne thinking and troubled. Uh, her hair is in a braid. We don't see her thinking very often. No. So we see that. Um, gorgeous Simon in a gorgeous robe comes in with a lantern. Are you ready for bed? They walk through this dark hall. Uh, and that's the point where I notice um, this song has words. Yeah, this is a very modern song. It's giving us a very specific kind of vibe. Yes. A foreboding vibe. Yes. I have very mixed... Well, I don't even know if they're mixed feelings. I have sort of negative feelings about the song. But anyway, so it's so it's clearly this is something different. We've got this modern... Like, even more modern than having an instrumental version of Taylor Swift. This is... Yeah. The song has words. So then we have what starts out as a really lovely sex scene, in my opinion. It mm-hmm. starts out. It starts out, there, yeah. He, um, Simon is... So Daphne undo, does her hair, kind of initiates it, which is... a bit new for us that we've seen mm-hmm. as the audience um simon's moving towards her she backs in the bed and there's this like the music is rising it's very good 
you know, it's very kind of romantic and intense and they're kissing, they're naked on the bed. And then we have this switch. Yeah. Where Daphne looks very determined. She rolls so that she's on top and you just see this calculating look on her face. And she places her hand on his shoulder and just holds him down as she, as he finishes and finishes inside of her. Yeah. So the music says, Mm. keep going, keep going, keep going. Oh, you're taking me down, haunting my dream. So that's uh, on the nose. Um, yeah. And and look. He calls out a couple of times, wait, wait, no. Yeah, he it's, says, wait, wait, uh, twice. Yeah. And then he says her name twice. Yep. Um, yeah. And also, the other thing is that uh, at this point, Simon is visibly agitated, visibly upset. Yes. Um, so as we should all know, you know, consent can be withdrawn at any, at any time. This has yep. clearly started out as a consensual sex scene. And at this point, it is no longer that uh, it's it's um, Simon has made that very clear that he, it is no longer consensual. And why? Because, as we have seen over and over again, Simon doesn't want to be a father. He uses the very rudimentary version of birth control of pulling out um, and and Daphne doesn't let him. No. Nope. So let's we'll talk. We're going to talk about this, but let's continue with the scene. Does that sound good? Um, they as as he comes they look at each other and like they both know what's happened like there's knowledge in their eyes it's very clear the music ends she's on top of him she looks stubborn he looks to me he looks betrayed yeah she gets off puts her robe on he's like slowly recovering his wits calls her name multiple times so she won't look at him she hasn't said anything she turns and then he stutters which is really heartbreaking and asks her what did what did you do yeah and she avoids the question and basically, it's like this was an experiment for her. She said, I hoped it wasn't true. Um, so to me, to me, it's important. Like the reason I'm doing the blow by blow of this is because it's important to see what the characters are thinking at this time. So yes. Simon says, how could you? And she says, very outraged. How could I? You lied to me. I trusted you. You took advantage. You seized an opportunity. And so I did the very same. Which to me, this says she knows what she did. Because if Simon took advantage and she does the same thing, what she's saying is that she took advantage. Absolutely. I completely agree. Um, and I, the the first time I'd seen this, I had forgotten that line. And so to see it again during this, it was, again, yeah, it very clear she knew what she was doing. Mm-hmm. Um, so there, they had this debate, this discussion about cannot versus will not give you ch- children and like lies of omission, which I would say is a valid argument but her actions have have really negated and invalidated her arguments yes um absolutely that discussion continues into the next episode but outside of this vague moment right now that we're talking about they this series never addresses this assault directly no so that's that's not going to happen in the future um Daphne's thing is you chose to lie to me and Simon says you know I thought you were prepared I thought you understood how a child came to be which I would say is like a somewhat reasonable response to that specific accusation except that he has deliberately been avoiding her questions and knows she was ignorant so I think that takes away his excuse about again that specific argument does not excuse Daphne's actions no um she insists that you know he took his future her future from her knowing that she wanted to be a mother again um like, I don't think it's very fair, but I would be more on her side right now if she hadn't done what she'd done. Yeah. Um, Simon reiterates, I would have died instead of 
put you in this situation, but you insisted. Um, and then really sadly, he says, you insisted you told me I was enough. And she says, that was before I knew you, which is way below the belt. Yeah. No, it that was way below the belt. And the more the dialogue continued through this continues mm-hmm. through the scene, it just makes it worse. It it's not it's not making it it just continues to make a bad situation, a bad thing that has happened like more clearly more starkly bad. Yes. It, like that's a yes. really bad way of saying that, but like you you get what I mean though. Like it just I absolutely do. So there's just a few more things in in keeping with what you said. So they talk about, well, Daphne talks about pity and betrayal. And I'm like, Daphne, you betrayed him. Um, he's struggling for words again. She's basically puts words in his mouth and says, you don't love me. You don't know what love means. And then this is a quote that I think is important from Daphne. She says, you do not lie to the one you love. You do not trick the one you love. You do not humiliate the one you love. And I would argue that she's essentially done just about all of those things in the last oh, yeah. five minutes. Oh, same. And again... My note is, great argument, Daphne, for 10 minutes ago. Yeah. Great argument before you did what you did. Um, Okay, so now that we hashed out all of that, of what happened, which, ugh, now we need to talk about it. Um, Yeah. One thing. uh, So, overall. Okay. Overall, my feelings on this scene. Yes. Is it shouldn't have happened. I feel Agreed. like this was lazy on the part of the writers. They could have figured out a different way to do this. They had, there were, there are numerous, we have talked about the numerous different ways this scene could have played out in the book. Um, We won't go into too much of that here. I'm going to talk a little bit about adaption versus the how it's played out here. But really, if you want to talk, hear our discussion about the book scene and how this plays out in the book, go listen to our episode about the Duke and I. And in that episode, we do make it clear that there, that it is Daphne assaults Simon in the book and that it's very difficult and yes, et cetera. We'll touch on some of those things now, but we, again, like Lita said, you can go and listen to that episode. Um, One of the big issues about this scene in the the series is that it is an adaptation. It is an adaptation of a book that's been out for 20 years. Yes. uh, And, Adaptations give a lot of space to to make changes. Uh, I and they did they chose not to do that here. They made a few changes, but they didn't. In in our in our opinion, I would say they didn't do a good job. Lydia and I had been talking about this before the show came out. Of I wonder what they're going to do for this, and is it going to be handled well? And are they just? I assume they'll just take out the scene because you can't have you can't have a romance that is supposed to end in a happily ever after for the two characters. Um, you can't have that where one of them rapes the other because we're still supposed to be cheering for them to be together. And how do you have that? How does that, you know, reconcile? Yeah. It's not just having a sec, uh, a rape scene in a show where then we aren't supposed to be wanting those two characters to be together. So that's an added layer. Yeah. And um, it is an added layer. And again, I'm going to go back to me overall. It is... It is just it's lazy writing mm-hmm. to know. And again, it's it's not like this is again, you said that this is a scene that was written twenty years ago when the book was published. Um this is not something that is like, oh, this book we found and we're just getting discussion about it. No. No, yes. no, 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 no. 
This is a scene that has been discussed in Romance Land. Yeah, which is what the kind of the generalized name for people that are into romance novels. This is a scene that is discussed all the time in regards to consent. It's not something that we just blow by. Mm-hmm. It's literally something that, I mean, Tay and I have talked about this scene so much in the last six or seven months and how they were going to do it. And to see it done this way is yeah. super fucking frustrating. Like, I'm just, I, I hate, I'm sorry to say it like that, but it is super no, it frustrating is. that a scene that, again, gets so much negative attention. It's not even, it is again and again reiterated, this is a wrong, this is not something that is kosher it is not okay what happens in the book and it's not like this is not hard to find you type in the duke and i on google search and numerous articles come up about this and the fact that they still chose to put this scene in this show pisses me off and and that Lydia really is to my point about it being 20 years old not as in oh we knew we didn't know better back then but as in we've had 20 years of discussion mm-hmm. and there was a different discussion around this 20 years ago um i i was very young when i first read this book and i was uncomfortable with the scene but i as i grew older i was able to articulate more of why mm-hmm. um but i i never ever ever read the book thinking yeah that makes total sense daphne's off scot i was i've always been disturbed by it um and like you said, there's been 20 years worth of discussion. So, and the writers did know that because they tried to soften it. Um, and what they did to soften it is in the book, this scene is while Simon is drunk. So, you know, we now understand very clearly in our society, we've had these discussions about what drunken consent is, which is not consent. So they knew to take that out. Um, so they, they they took that out. So so they knew what that it was wrong and tried to make it not wrong. And, and to me, that's almost worse. Failed at it. Yeah. So, so okay. So, just to be clear, what we're talking about here is, um, so what Daphne does to Simon in the last ten minutes of this episode is sexual assault. It is reproductive coercion, and it is gaslighting. Yes. And on top of that, I believe what the what the writers, creators of Bridgerton, do with this scene is gaslighting of the audience. So not everyone who watched this. Oh, go ahead. Absolutely. No, like I'm, I'm just I'm agreeing with you. Everything that you say. So I know that not everyone who watched this saw this as a sexual assault. Part of that is absolutely sort of the gendered conversations and expectations we have in society of a man rapes a woman. That's what sexual assault is. We know that that is not <laughs> that is not the definition of sexual assault, and it is unfortunately more expensive than that. Um, but we are geared to think that way in society. So that is part of it. But the other reason that people might not have re- recognized this for what it was or might not have taken it seriously is because the show doesn't want us to take it seriously. Mm-hmm. And the show does everything it, it can to, after making it clear what happens, <laughs> obfuscate it as much as possible and then not address it for the rest of the series. And also, this is a Netflix format. So it's it's a bingeable format. So And so much happens in every episode like we've been talking about. So much happens in the season. So we're supposed to... It, this has to happen because of how they have created the plot. We have to recognize that what happened was wrong because of the plot, but then we have to immediately forget and not think that anything bad happened because we have to still keep loving Daphne as the main character. We have to still want Daphne and Simon to be together and we have to want to be able to watch more episodes or more seasons. So we have to forget or not take seriously what happened for this to work. Yeah. And that's gaslighting. (sighs) Yeah. And we do. We go through two more episodes of this series where it's never brought up again. Yeah. 
And that, so there are layers to me. There's one is that it's an adaptation, so they could have made a different decision. The other is that they portrayed uh, this rape on screen that is between characters that are supposed to be in love that we're supposed to root for. But the third thing is, there's almost the worst part to me is that the conversation and context around this minimizes what happened. And that to me, like I personally, I don't want to be watching a rape scene on screen. No, I just don't. However, if we're using it to talk about um, consent and, and issues, that's at least something like to put this on screen and then immediately back away from talking about it. That is what upsets me almost more than anything else. And I think that's partly because I'm I'm coming from the book where where this is a faithful adaptation in that in the book, Daphne immediately turns it on Simon, immediately makes it about her. And the book lets that happen, just like mm-hmm. in the show where we're supposed to now be siding with Daphne after this, where, again, everything she's saying, I might have agreed with 10 minutes ago. And now she's completely compromised all sense of righteousness because of her actions. And I think the thing that makes me even more frustrated with this scene in regards to everything that you've said to about this is in the culture that we currently live in we have sat through media where this conversation has come up again and again and again especially in terms of shows like you know um game of thrones and outlander and all these quote-unquote period pieces that we're seeing where rape is portrayed over and over and over again and the constant backlash of this happening um by the by the consumers and it doesn't seem to deter them and so the fact that we're getting this show that is claiming to be you know so progressive and diverse and everything like that and then to have them do something like this and then again still backing away from it and saying you said gaslighting the viewers once again is so frustrating and to to see that you know it's still a plot point that they're willing to use to quote-unquote make a point Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and it just like stop yeah, we don't, it's lazy writing. It's and lazy it's, writing. It's, it's, you get more shock value for a small scene if you do this. And that's why I assume that's why people keep doing it. Um, I don't know if that's why, but I'm really sick of seeing it. And OK, so now is the part to address gender, I guess. Um, maybe if you're listening to this and you're not quite on board of like, I don't really see it as an assault. I think that's pretty strong way to frame this. I, I hate to do this, but like just for a moment, picture it instead of Daphne, a man pinning down a woman during sex after she's consented to sex and when she says wait twice and says his name twice uh because he's doing something that they've previously discussed not in explicit terms but in general terms that she didn't want to happen um how would that make us feel as the audience Uh, and then secondly because it's a reproductive issue like how would we the audience feel if this was a modern show and simon threw away her birth controls or lied about using a condom um at a point where she then couldn't make any decisions about that for her own body i would feel pretty awful for both of those situations um yep and it's hard for me to look at this as anything other than an adaptation of a book that i've read so i don't know if i was coming to this without having read bridgerton's if this would be a point where i would stop watching or if i'm a little bit of a hypocrite or not but 
I can only see this as an adaptation. And I read the book, thought it was wrong, hoped they would do something differently in the show. And the other thing is, I know this made some people quit Bridgerton. That's not the case for me. I have watched shows that other people that I've friends and family have been fine with. And I seen like this turned me off it forever and I just was done. So I understand that people are doing that. Again, for me, I'm a book reader. I'm coming from this going, there are no scenes or issues of consent like this in any other Julia Quinn book that I've read, any other Bridgerton book. Uh, and I know the next several seasons, if they're at least faithful to the book on this, won't have that. And so that's a lot of my motivation of I want to see the stories of characters that I love. I want to see their stories. And I know I don't have to worry about this because it was just in the one book. So that's what I'm coming to for, for my future of watching the show. I am well aware that that's not going to be the case for everyone. And yeah, fair enough. I No, I completely agree with that. The, the continued watching of this show for me is the fact that I what I know is coming and what I know doesn't continue to happen. Um, if I were a casual viewer, it might be a different story. If I knew they were only doing just just this book, I probably would have stopped watching at this point. If all they were going to do was just this one season, this was the only thing they were going to do. I think I'd be done because, again, it's it, it's not that the writers didn't know. It is very clear yeah. based on interviews that I've read. It's very clear based on stuff that they have said. They knew. They and like knew. I said, the softening of the scene, making it a little bit murkier than it was in the book. Deliberately, they did know. And I don't... I don't know. I'm See, not- to me, the way that I've read it... I don't find it to be more murky. I think they've done it in a different way, but I don't think it's more murky than what they've done in the book. I think that's what they were trying. That's a good point. I think that they were trying to, though. I think they were trying to make this a consensual scene by removing some elements. And it's interesting because I, okay, like Julie, we both love Julie Quinn, but like the author of the book, I think that the writers of the show believe that this is consensual. Yes. But it's interesting because the, the reason I went through this play by play, which might have been uncomfortable for people, and and I'm sorry, but you have you have seen the show. I went by it play by play because I, like in the book, I felt like a detective of like, sh- while the writer is telling us that this is consensual, Daphne's actions are telling us it isn't. Like she does, she doesn't feel guilt, but she does feel she does know that she did something wrong, and so I'm watching her face and her actions for these little clues because after the scene, they both act like she did nothing wrong at least in the book yeah and um and yeah my point is that i do think that daphne knows better but that the writers somehow act like it isn't but my thing is um if this was not a a breach of a violation of consent and a breach of simon's trust then what happens going forward doesn't make any sense what happens forward we'll of course discuss next week in the next episode but um but this isn't this is important to happen the way that they plotted it was that this has to happen in order for the rest of the season to happen. And it has to happen in terms of their emotional journeys and their relationship with each other, the way they've plotted it. So it doesn't make any sense if it is consensual. It just doesn't. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm not saying that that's why they, I'm not saying they should have done the scene. I'm saying the way they've done it, they're trying to act like it's consensual, but it just doesn't make sense. No. Um, and then can I ask, can I say one more thing about just like this, the, 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 the looking of the, the, the visual of this scene and just the, the, the another added layer of mm-hmm. ickiness that this scene adds is the fact that it is a white woman holding down a black man as she assaults him in a yeah. period piece is 
incredibly tone deaf. Incredibly tone deaf. Or a non-period piece. Even in in a non-period piece, too, it's tone deaf. But I just... mm, It's... It's... It is... It's tone deaf. It's... It... I can't even express Mm -hmm. my outrage at seeing that happen because it is so disgusting to me Mm -hmm. as a viewer watching a white woman hold down a black man as she assaults him. Yeah. It's, it kind of harkens back to me of like, that there's that statistic of like, so, so few reports of assault are fabricated. Even though that every time so a woman reports, you know, a person reports, um, that's thrown up of like, oh, do we believe her? It's like, well, for the most part, people don't fabricate this. And yet there are documented cases of white women, white women fabricating sexual assaults by black men because of racism and for no other reason. Um, unfortunately, that's that's reality. So, yeah, so this is this is rough. Um, I will include an article in the link that I thought was very good that addresses race and talks about how it. It argues that the colorblindness of the casting is one reason um, that this, that the colorblindness of the casting allows for these really awful tropes, um, racist tropes to exist because we're pretending that race isn't a factor in any of this. It's able to be reproduced. So it's really good. And I'm going to include it in the, in the links uh, in the description. Thank you. Um, so a few other, <laughs> I know we're talking about this a lot, but a few other things, one thing that to touch on your bit about historical, um, a lot of times this stuff hides, hides behind being historical. Oh, well, of course there's a rape in this, uh, show book, whatever, because it's historical and like things, bad things happened back then. That doesn't necessarily, that isn't its own excuse for showing it. Right. But also it's historical. So can a man you know, be raped in historically. Well, yes. Um, and also, you know, it's historical. So like they don't have the words that we have to talk about it. So maybe that's why they didn't discuss it. No. And I'll tell you, number one, we've been spending so many episodes talking about how this show is so modern with modern uh, focused characters and modern music and all these things. Now is not the time to worry about being a historical. That ship sailed. Um, and secondly, I think it could have been framed in a way that's sort of pseudo-historical and that you could have talked about violation of trust in a way that the modi- audience understood meant consent. I think you can talk about it without using the word consent uh, if you're worried about that not being historical. I said reproductive coercion. I wanted to talk a little bit about what that was. It's kind of self-explanatory. It is a form of intimate partner violence. And it's exactly what Daphne does to Simon, which is... Um, taking away his his choices about reproduction Mm -hmm. and um unfortunately it's very common and it's it erodes trust and i have this quote from um one love dot org which is like tries to prevent uh intimate partner violence um and it says um wanting to have children is a normal human experience but forcing someone into an unwanted pregnancy is abuse likewise being forced to end a pregnancy is never okay I, it doesn't need to be said, but maybe it does need to be said. Um, it's That's what she does to Simon, and it's awful. And I actually thought it was an interesting parallel between what happens to Simon's mother, because we're shown, like, Simon's driving reason for not wanting children is this traumatic childhood of what, you know, how his father behaved towards him and how his father forced his mother to continue trying to uh, have a, a baby to the point of, of dying. Um, so it's it's really sad to see that that's happening to Simon as well in a parallel between him and his mother. 
Lydia, I know you and I have read a lot of articles in preparation for talking about this. Um, for those of you who haven't, I'm going to be including a second uh, article that I, I yes. really think is worthwhile in the description notes. The first one was by Mariana Salem at junkie.com. And the one I'm about to talk about is by Asia Romano uh, on Vox. And there, there's a lot of articles out there. A lot of them are very good. Uh, I've already said why I've, I've highlighted the former. Uh, the reason I'm highlighting this one in particular uh, on Vox is for two reasons. Number one, uh, the author covers a lot of really important parts that you and I have already discussed, uh, concluding uh, the way that showrunners chose to break down the scene uh, really um, highlights and speaks to the silencing and scapegoating of black male victims of sexual assault. Uh, which is really unfortunate, but really important to read about. Um, and then the other reason that I really wanted to highlight this article in particular is that the author very clearly comes at this from a perspective of being uh, an appreciator of romance and being critical of Bridgerton. And I, I cannot tell you how much I appreciate this. I know you do as well, Lydia, but I, I've read so many articles about Bridgerton that are just so snooty, <laughs> so um, barely veiled, sometimes not at all veiled contempt for the genre, for anyone who likes the idea of being lost in a fantasy, for escapism, just completely writing off everything that might be fun or worthwhile about it, uh, and then criticizing it, or even praising it backhandedly. What I want to read is something that gives it a chance and then genuinely looks at critically and analytically and says, is this worthwhile? What, you know, what are we doing? Why? What does this mean? You know, I, I don't want um, to have to take a bunch of interesting criticisms in the middle of just slamming on things that are fun for me. So I really appreciated that. So to illustrate this, I want to draw from the end of this article where the author refers to other reviews calling Bridgerton delightful trash. Quote, as a huge lifelong lover of the sorts of romance stories Bridgerton is adapting, what I hate most about this summation is that it implies that the ingredients of this story are a part of the inherent nature of the raunchy, racy historical romance. Not only is that a condescending attitude toward a genre that is frequently very literary and very serious, but it's flatly wrong. Rape, especially unacknowledged rape, is by no means a feature of historical romance writing, nor was it going unaddressed and undebated back when Quinn wrote the story 20 years ago. Countless romance writers have done better than this. Bridgerton could and should have followed their example. To which I can only say, absolutely yeah. Well said. Nope. I, yeah. Uh, there's so many good examples of this being handled much, much better and consent being important in historical and contemporary and, yes, even paranormal romance. Uh, and it's absolutely worthwhile to hold the standard up high and to be critical and uh, within the genre as well. Yeah, no, I I very much I very much appreciated that article as well. And yeah, there were a couple that I read that were very condescending to this and to how it's viewed and how romance views it. And it, I'm like that a lot of that is incorrect. Mm -hmm. Um I mean if you haven't noticed by this point by talking to Tay and I but on a whole, romance 
very much frowns on sexual assault and rape. Like, that is not... It's ex- not been the case throughout the, the history of romance, that's, yeah, but true. modern romance. Um, a lot of it is very preoccupied by this. It's about, um, you know, women and relationships and, like, what what each of us readers should be expecting in a relationship. And part of that is consent. Consent. Enthusiastic consent. We want consent. That is something that we want. If we want it in our own lives, why would we not want it in the novels that we are reading? Exactly. And then conversely, if we're reading it in novels and we're seeing it portrayed in healthy ways and couples are communicating, why would we not want to incorporate that into our own lives? Exactly. So, yeah, so it's really important. Um, we always talk about how much we love the author, Julia Quinn. And part of that is because, in my mind, this book is an outlier for in terms of like consent. And so that's why I like reading her and many, many other authors. Um, this has always been a be- like a befuddling and disappointing uh, book for me. Same. Ma- largely for that reason. Uh, and and I'll just say that I, I feel like it's worth saying one more time. I was so frustrated and disappointed in the book and I am likewise in the show for the lack of discussion about this and the way that it is immediately turned on uh, onto Simon, where it's immediately about feeling bad for Daphne and outraged for Daphne and pitying and frustrated for Daphne. All things that may well have been true mm-hmm. before this scene happened um, that we're immediately supposed to not worry about Simon and we're immediately supposed to be empathizing with Daphne. And that's what both the book and the show ask us to do. And it is a hard ask Yes. It is an impossible ask as far as I'm concerned. No, it is. And I think it's really important that um, that we do have conversations about it. Again, I, I, I really would like to, to think, a lot of these articles that I've read, it is okay to like problematic content. Again, as long as you recognize the problematic elements and the problematic you know ideas that it presents to you and discuss those Uh problematic tell us talk about why they are problematic what is the issue why is this wrong Mm -hmm. nothing changes what do we want to see in real life exactly nothing changes unless you talk about it um again i really just to me it all again boils down this shouldn't have happened in this show Mm -hmm. i get that it is a piece it is part of the plot of the book I don't give a fuck. It's something that shouldn't have happened in the show. It is something that the writers knew about. And again, this is based on articles and interviews that they have given repeatedly saying, oh, yes, it's part of the book. We've seen the discussion on it. So why the fuck did you put it in the goddamn show? If you've seen the way that writers, readers, and other people have discussed this book particularly this scene in this book what makes you think that even trying to soften it was a good idea it, it just yeah anyway yep. that's yeah and, and it's it's interesting i think there, there's a particular challenge here where we, we have talked about the positive side of julie quinn's writing which is that she makes sex scenes relevant to the plot and the character development mm-hmm. um she does like with this scene as well even though it is an assault um and so it would be difficult to sort of craft a new a new plot that has the same rise and fall in, in sort of emotion and and uh development and everything but let's remember so I, that is not an excuse because let's remember um they have changed a lot for an adaptation for a show because it's a different medium it's a different time it's a it's a slightly different version of the story there has been so much that's changed i absolutely believe that the writers could have changed it it's it's not an excuse it's merely a challenge exactly um, so that's ridiculous and then back to what you're saying about um 
you know, you can love something and have it still be problematic. It's so important in this and in, in all of life to not excuse things because you love them. Exactly. You and I both read and watch problematic things. Um, and certainly there's a point where maybe we we need to look at ourselves and say, like, you know, do, is this worth watching anymore? Which is, again, I know people have done that and like, fine, it makes sense. Um, we've both decided it's worth watching for the reasons we've articulated. However, that doesn't mean we then rewrite the narrative to say this was actually fine for these reasons. Um, it's if we're going to enjoy it and love Bridgerton, we've got to be able to say, call out what's wrong. Yes. <laughs> and and call out the, the, the character's actions. And the show makes it harder for us to do that, again, because of the lack of discussion, because the twisting on Simon and the, the focus on Daphne. And so it, it would be much easier to say, oh, this is wrong if the show acknowledged that and the characters acknowledged that. And so the the, the double trauma for Simon of not only this happening, but then not having necessarily the words to describe what's happening to him as a man, but on top of that, complete like rejection of any feelings he might have about that. It's just like it didn't happen. Yeah. So I, I think that's awful. And I, I would have loved to see either not have to see this <laughs> or have a discussion within the context of the show. And that is not what we got. So I think it's fair to say both of us were disappointed and weren't super looking forward to discussing this. Um, but our, it was very important that we do so. And I will say the first time I viewed this show, um, because I am on the Twitter sphere, I found out kind of what they did before I watched the episode. And in a whole, okay. that soured the episode for me. Like, I I would watch it. I was watching it and being like, is this when it's going to happen? Is this when it's going to happen? Is this when uh. it's going to happen? So the first time I watched it, I was watching this in the anticipation that I knew what was coming. And I was so disappointed. Like, I just watching this feeling with this, like, not in my stomach going, they didn't change it. Mm-hmm. They didn't change it. And just over and over and again, again, telling my head, they didn't change it. And just the, the immense disappointment I felt in the writers of this show, knowing that. Yeah. For me, I think uh, maybe it was, I don't remember what scene, but maybe like the scene where she was, Daphne was talking with Mrs. Coulson and Mrs. Coulson kind of talks about healthy seed and stuff. Uh, I think maybe around that my mom gasped and turned and looked at me on the couch and said, oh, I just remembered. Because she read the book, you know, a few years ago. And she, I just remembered like, what, and I was like, yep, mm-hmm, yep, we're, we're going to have to watch that. Um, and then we did. And... Yeah, it's just, again, it's an adaptation, and there's a lot you can do with adaptation. Departure from the original isn't necessarily a bad thing if it's no. done in the spirit of the original, and we have said lots of um, positive and negative things about the adap- this uh, show as an adaptation, and I think, unfortunately, this is very much a negative um, yes. part of adaptation, and just, just being left with the feeling of what you could have done better. Um, why do re- viewers have to see that, and then why do you have to make us question whether we saw it? Um, that's, Yeah. So, um, I think we've made it pretty clear how we feel about different parts of the episode, uh, what we thought was a good adaptation and wasn't, what was a good romance and wasn't. No, I agree. Um, but it ends with a Whistledown voiceover and we go through several different scenes as we're listening to Lady Whistledown and the show. Yeah. Um, Did you think it was a good format? I... Or was it just so much after... 
I think it was so much. And even on the second viewing, I'm I'm like, I'm not paying attention to what's going on in the second part, which again, it's not surprising. Like, you can't, I yeah, just the way that the structure- It's a lot is, to take in. It's a, it's a lot to take in structurally to end it that way with Daphne walking out on Simon after she's just, you know, done this atrocious thing to him. And now we're going into- other drama happening elsewhere within this okay. show is very yeah. I almost think that like the tail very end much. of this episode could have waited until the next episode like it didn't need to be okay. in episode six yeah. okay yeah I, I think that's fair but they wanted to end on on high drama so they did <laughs> yep so, so yeah, we have um, uh, Lady Whistledown's voiceover uh as we see the press um, printing out Lady Whistledown sheets, that was cool. Um, we hear a uh, trail of broken hearts, the price we pay uh, for the t- decisions we make, the, lo- the ones we love hurt us the most. And as she's saying that, we see um, Eloise on a swing at night, pulling the pins out of her hair, sort of in dejection. Uh, and Penelope comes to her crying. Crying. And they, it seems like they have made up. And yeah, they kind of hug it out. They kind of hug it out, and then we see Whistledown being delivered the next morning, and in which we find that Lady Whistledown has announced Marina's pregnancy, yeah. um, or her fraud, her as she fraud. calls it. Um, and this is as Colin and Marina were getting ready to elope. This is as um. The voiceover happens as we see Daphne and Simon sitting in separate rooms away from each other after this, again, horrible thing that Daphne has committed against Simon. Um, Lady Whistledown is talking about Marina, but we're seeing Simon and Daphne, so it's clearly that we're supposed to see the words for them. So speaking about Marina, Lady Whistledown says, but I imagine many will think her actions beyond the pale. Perhaps she thought it her only option, or perhaps she knows no shame. Can the ends ever justify such wretched means? Honestly, if the voiceover had just been over, like, just Daphne and Simon, I don't think I would have minded the the ending. Like, I think it would have fit better. Um, okay. But honestly, I think it, it does. It's meant to leave the the this, you know, thought in our head. Well, again, coming back to they're trying to soften it. And it doesn't. I mean, honestly, this this line that added of this particular line doesn't soften it for me. It makes it even worse. That's the thing is that these lines of um, her actions beyond the pale. You know, maybe it was her only option. Maybe she knows no shame. Wretched means that to me is like we all know what just happened. Let's think on that. Let's end the episode on that. So it's it's a very there's a lot of conflicting messages. If we're really not supposed to see this as an assault, but we really have to see it as an assault for things to make sense. But again, this is a binge style format. So how many people end on that note? I mean, maybe choose not to pick it up again, but like how many people end on that note versus how many people then click on the next thing, which is which is what I did the first time. Absolutely. So that is rough. Um, Yeah. Yeah, I I honestly I'm feeling pretty negative about (laughs) this show uh, just because of having watched this episode very carefully and, and having read criticism of it and having been thinking of this scene since December 26th when I watched this for the first time. Yes. Um, then sitting with this, it's um, I'm not obviously 
we both like the show and are looking forward to season two, but I am feeling very down on it because of this and because of spending time with this. And, and because this is never divorced from real life, the media that we see, it replicates real life and it becomes part of our cultural conversation. And obviously none of us would pack a punch if it, if it didn't have any place in our real lives. Absolutely. So while this is an escapist fantasy, it, it is dealing with human relations and it is really disheartening to have to parse this together in 2021 when we and the writers all know better. Yeah. I guess that's where we're going to end our discussion on this episode. (laughs) Um, Yeah. It's hard for me even to really even joke about this episode. Like, like I've done in the past. I just, I can't, there's just, there's nothing to joke about. It's, it, yeah, I can't. I can't read listeners. I can't. All right. So, uh, so uh, what are you reading or watching, Lydia? <laughs> um, this week I going around on Twitter. Um, because I follow a lot of romance landia shit on Twitter because I like romance landia shit posts. They make my day. They make me happy. Um, uh. Twitter user that I very much enjoy, her name is Carly Lane Perry, was talking about um, a book by uh, a romance author named Elizabeth Hoyt uh, called When a Rogue Meets His Match. Um, I was very excited to go and look at from the library. They did not have one, but they did have the first one in this series, which is called the Grey Court series. Um, And so I read the first one called... Not the Duke's Darling by Elizabeth Hoyt, um, which I very much enjoyed. It's very, it, it's slightly uh, a lot of agency for the female characters, for which I really, really appreciated. Um, and the main character himself was quite delicious, and I enjoyed him. Uh, talked a lot about PTSD. Um and there's a couple other things. I really enjoyed it. Uh, also got me really excited to find out at the end of this book that Elizabeth Hoyt is from Mi- is uh, based in Minnesota. She's based here in the Twin Cities. And it's very exciting for me to know that uh, an author that I'm found and enjoyed is is Minnesotan. She was born in Ooh. born not in Minnesota, but she's made Minnesota her home for most of the last several years. So, um. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, Not the Duke's Darling, I finished, and I've now, because I still don't have the second one yet, I'm now starting um, her first, her other, one of her other series called, was it Maiden? Maiden Lane. Maiden Lane, um, which Tay is very excited. It's so good. I just Um, love that series. The first book is called (laughs) Wicked Intentions, and that is the book I just started this morning. I'm awesome. I'm very happy to read romance when I'm very stressed out, which I currently am in my personal life. So this is just a great way to like decompress at the end of the day. Yeah, for sure. So mm-hmm. also her sex scenes are fabulous. I would just like to say that. <laughs> so and you, my friend? 
Well, I sort of apologize to listeners because I am basically always reading a romance novel at any point in time. I'll, you know, I'll have like four books open and one of them will be romance, uh, but not right now. So I actually have no romance recs to give. But uh, if I'm honest, what I am reading right now, I'm reading Solutions and Other Problems by Ali Broche, which is sort of the second, the sequel to Hyperbole and a Half. I don't know if people have read her like very funny um, graphic novel before, but that anyway, that's her her second book, and I am enjoying it. Uh, I am also reading Mikhail Bogukov's uh, The Master and Margarita. I just started it, and I am very into it. Uh, but again, just on the first chapter. So that was based on a recommendation for a friend who said, you got to read this book, and you've got to read this short story that he did. And I read the short story and loved it, and then started the book, and um, feeling good about that. But I think next week I'll have some romance recs for you all. Uh, independent bookstores, Lydia. <laughs> All right, so um, I'm going to wreck a small uh, independent bookstore in um, in northern Minnesota uh, called Beagle and Wolf Books and Bindery. Oh, cute. Um, Beagle Books and – Beagle and Wolf Books. Sorry. I know it as Beagle and Wolf – Beagle Books because that's what I've grown up knowing it as. Um. It has been a staple bookstore in Park Rapids, Minnesota, which is where my family has a um, summer cabin. And I've grown up going to this bookstore probably since it, I, I'm not even sure when it opened, actually. I, I've done like no research. I just know that it's there and I love it. Um, I just have very vivid memories from probably the age of like 13 or 14 going to this bookstore. Like when we go to Park Rapids, to do a day at t- in town because you know that's how we roll in northern minnesota um we go to uh book world which is up the street we go to ben franklin which is a craft store across the street we go to Caf- uh, bella cafe which is a coffee shop and then we go to beagle books like literally that's the that's the progression of how we do stuff on our days in town and um it's very small, but I love it. It's a very welcoming place. Um, and then this summer, all of their COVID um, uh, precautions re- was very impressive for me from a small town in northern Minnesota, which I wasn't expecting. And I was very pleased by that. So... Um, definitely go and check out their website, beagleandwolf.com. Uh, like I said, it's very near and dear to my heart, and I wholeheartedly recommend that you check them out. Awesome. Very cool. Well, my rec is a big bookstore. It's Powell City of Books in Portland, Oregon. Uh, it, it always feels like the quintessentially Pacific Northwest bookstore to me, although I'm sure Washington will uh, have different ideas. Uh, but it is just uh, the massive. I mean, there's several locations, but the, the main location is massive. They've got the little, you know, the whole little tourist market where there's Portland and Powell's sort of merchandise to buy. But they also have, they have games, which is cool. And it's new and used books. And so you can go and get like a well-thumbed through, like lurid uh, covered sci-fi book. And you can also get the latest hardcover of xyz biography um they have just section after section um story after story uh i mean in terms of like (laughs) realize that that's not a useful description for books there's different levels of the store (laughs) um there's you know the huge children's book section there's 
just anything you, you can think of. And there's, of course, a cafe in there, although I have no idea what that looks like in COVID times. I know that I have been ordering books from them um, through the mail because I want them to stay open because they have been around for a while and they're great. I've not been there in many a moon, many a moon um, but it is just a wonderful, it's like a great vibe. It's a good place to like find new picks and just sort of bask in the glory of books. So it's definitely uh, a bookworm's first stop in Portland. Should anyone be traveling ever again? Um, just kidding. I'm not actually that dour. I, I do feel optimistic about things. But, you know, I know that we're all just sort of sitting around and virtually appreciating things. So there you go. Um, listeners, next up, we have episode seven, Oceans Apart, coming next week. Please, as usual, please rate and subscribe. Tell people sub- tell people about us. Um, please leave ratings and reviews on all of our um platform apps i think on spotify you can do it uh, apple Podcasts, i believe on stitcher you can as well um reviews and ratings are what helps people find us um if you want people to if you want us to continue doing this which again we stated that we are we have plans for the future but uh we also would like to continue having listeners so let people find us rate and review um you can find us on instagram and facebook at calling cards pod on twitter at cards calling on our website, callingcards.wixsite.com slash callingcardspod, or by emailing us at callingcardspod at gmail.com. Original music by Pasta Cat. Find out more by following at Pasta Cat Music on Instagram. Thanks, Thanks for, for listening. listening.